I'm just going to go ahead and uh, start tonight's episode uh, with a, a little warning. I'm going to add this warning here at the beginning of the, of the podcast. We're going to be talking about the bridegroom of blood incident. And because of that, it, it surrounds the issue of circumcision. So we're going to have to discuss circumcision, what it is. We're going to use medical terminology. We're going to be uh, very clean about this. We're going to be very respectful about this. And we're going to be very mature, adult, and medical. But tonight's episode kind of considered a PG episode because if you don't want your kids hearing, you know, in, in detail, you know, what, what the traditions and the, and the techniques and stuff for circumcision are, maybe not have them listen to, to this episode. But we're going to talk about this tonight. And we're just going to be very blunt. And we're going to be adults about this. But uh, just understand that tonight's episode is going to be a PG episode. Uh, decide whether or not you want your kids to hear it because we're going to deal bluntly with circumcision, why it's practiced, what are the medical implications, and what were the uh, reasons potentially for doing it in some of these cultures that practiced it. So just a, a fair warning tonight that tonight is going to be an SE episode, but it's also going to be a little PG. It's been a few weeks since I posted an episode, and I apologize for that. We, uh, The family and I went on our first actual vacation since probably 2018, and it was, it was very much needed. Unfortunately, when we came back from vacation, we met with family tragedy. My wife's cousin died earlier this week, and her father died Wednesday of this week. So it was kind of a double blow to the family. So for my listeners out there, you know, offer up a, pl- a prayer for our family as we're going through this difficult time. Uh, I've, uh, I've got to continue with my DE episodes, and I will get to that eventually, but I'm going to intersperse it with some SE episodes because the DE episodes, frankly, they take a lot. Uh, but tonight we're going to go on, go on and do an episode tonight, and we're going to talk about some of the mysteries of Moses. So uh, pray for us as we go through this time, and uh, I'm going to do my best to get through an episode tonight. Moses, Moshe. Who was he? He was the Levite who was cast adrift in the Nile to escape the murder of the firstborn in Egypt, and he became the most revered and significant of all the Jewish prophets, founding the Jewish religion as we know it, and providing the foundation for both the Jewish and Christian scriptures with his five books. But what do we know about him? Well, there's not a whole lot known about his early years. The Bible leaves a huge gap from him being found by the Pharaoh's daughter and him suddenly showing up more or less fully grown. But together, the Bible and Jewish tradition tell us more than most people realize. Did you know that when Moses died, there was a dispute over his body? And it involved the archangel Michael and the devil. Now, we're told that by Jude, and he actually got that, allegedly, from an apocryphal work known as the Assumption of Moses, and that was actually addressed and talked about by one of Christianity's early church fathers, Origen. Did you know that Moses was married before he fled to Midian and met Zipporah? 
And did you know that that marriage had actually come about because he had participated in military campaigns as a prince of Egypt way down in Africa against Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia? Did you know that God and Moses' second wife got into a dispute about circumcision? And guess who won that one? Yeah, always bet on God. But what about the kids? Well, tradition tells us that Gershom gives rise to a son who leads the tribe of Dan to idol worship. And yet, the Masoretes try to cover that up. While his brother becomes the father of a great many people. But there's a question. Who else was a son of Moses? Because Numbers chapter 3 says this is the line of Moses and Aaron, but it only lists Aaron's sons. Why? Well, according to the Jewish tradition, Moses failed to properly instruct his own sons in the very books he wrote, and God recognizes Aaron's sons as being the sons of Moses because Moses did step up and teach his nephews the ways of God, but not his own kids. And speaking of the kids, who was circumcised back in Exodus chapter 4 in what's called the bridegroom of blood incident? Who was the one that was circumcised? Was it Gershom or Eliezer? What's even more important is, why did God force Zipporah to perform the circumcision? Frankly, in that culture, as a woman, that was not her place. As a man and a Levite, it was Moses' responsibility to make sure his sons were placed into the covenant and circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. So why is Zipporah the one who's forced to do it? What's interesting is also when we look at the text, we have two different accounts of what happened. They're slightly different. The Septuagint gives one account. The Masoretic texts give a different account. In the Masoretic text, she touches someone with her son's foreskin. But who it is isn't really identified. Pronouns are used. Was it her son, Moses? Or was it God? Welcome to Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I'm Dr. Mick Robison, your guide through the controversies, history, and debates surrounding the Bible. We're going to discuss a lot of issues over the next two episodes and possibly, possibly three. This may wind up being a three-episode series. It depends on, on how the second episode goes. But there are a lot of mysteries surrounding Moses, not only from his early years, because we've got this huge gap, but why was there a, a debate between the archangel Michael and the devil over the fate of Moses' body? And we're told about that in Jude. What happened to Moses' kids? And what is this curious link between Moses that gets hinted at by Yeshua during the Transfiguration where he has a staff meeting with Moses and Elijah. And then we hear about these two witnesses that come about in Revelation and the powers described to them are the same miracles worked by Moses and Elijah. And we also know from the account of John the Baptist that the Pharisees were looking for a return of either Moses or Elijah and asked John the Baptist, are you Moses or are you Elijah? And he said he was neither one.
So what is this curious link between Moses and Elijah and Revelation? We'll look at that as well in another episode. But for tonight, I think it's going to be enough just to try to plow through the bridegroom of blood incident. Y'all may think that's a strange thing to say, but once we get into this, you'll understand how complicated it is because the bridegroom of blood incident is just three verses in the Bible. And yet it's three verses that are absolutely anathema to most preachers. They don't want to touch this with a 10-foot pole because it is so bizarre and confusing. And not only that, it's mostly confusing, not only because all of a sudden God's grooming Moses and then suddenly it appears he wants to kill someone in Moses' party. The assumption is it's Moses, but we're going to talk about that. It may not have been. But what's so confusing about it is the fact that the only named participants are either this angel or God himself and Zipporah. The rest are masculine pronouns. So we don't actually know who's doing what to whom and who's actually the subject of the attack. We don't really know. And as a result, there have been volumes written on this and there are multiple traditions that have come about because of this very ambiguous set of three verses in the Bible. And this has... (laughs) It's amazing how much controversy these three verses have caused. And so we'll delve into them tonight. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I try to be fair, but there are some views out there that if you look at other places in Scripture don't really hold water. And I'll address some of those. There are others that, well, you may not agree with them or not, but based on the grammar involved, they're plausible. So we'll deal with these too. Now, I could I could start off with Moses' birth and say, well, Moses was born in the tribe of Levi and go from there. But there are complexities surrounding the Exodus in and of itself that need to sort of be addressed. And frankly, we're giving history a disservice by starting with the birth of Moses. So we're going to go back a little farther than that. And we're going to discuss some things that may enlighten you and give you a little more context into this scene that we are going to discuss tonight, but it's also going to give more context to the wider scenery that surrounds it of the bondage of Israel and the role of Moses. So let's let's go back in time. We're going to talk about Yosef for a minute. We'll do more on Yosef later, particularly Yosef and his wife, but it was a prosperous time for the children of Israel under Yosef and his wife, Asenath. And the reason it was is because if you recall the tale tale of Yosef, Yosef is the youngest son of Jacob. Jacob gets renamed Israel, right? And he is the founder of the nation of Israel. And his, remember, Jacob's brother was was Esau. You remember the, the story of Jacob and how he steals Esau's birthright and Esau's really flippant and uh, gives it up, and, and you actually have some passages in the Bible, and we'll talk about that when we get to Jacob. Uh, God did not like Esau, okay? God, God had animosity toward Esau. So part of that was probably his flippancy at his own birthright. But there was a lot of drama that surrounded Jacob. Well, Jacob 
gives clear favor to his youngest son, Yosef, gives him a coat of many colors. And his brothers, who wound up founding the tribes of Israel, are very jealous of their brother. And so what they do is they, to use a, her, a, a modern term, they human traffic him. All right? They send him off and sell him into slavery, dip the coat of many colors in blood, and take it back to their father and lie to their father and say, Yosef was killed. Yosef is sold into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. He gets bought by a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Yosef and tries to bed him. And Yosef's like, no, can't happen, no. So she gets angry at the rejection and alleges that he tried to rape her, frames him. Potiphar has Yosef sent to prison. In prison, there are two guys there that had served Pharaoh. And they have dreams. One of them winds up dying. The other is restored to service. But before that happens, Yosef predicts their fates from their dreams. God gives Yosef the ability to interpret the dreams. And when the guy is who survives, and one, one is killed, the other one survives and is restored to service to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh begins to have dreams. And this servant that has been restored to Pharaoh's court tells Pharaoh, when I was in prison, I and another of your servants had dreams, and there's a guy there that interpreted them, interpreted them and they came true exactly as he said. So the Pharaoh sends for Yosef and tells Yosef his dream. Yosef interprets the dream, and it comes to pass exactly as Yosef said. So Pharaoh is extremely pleased with Yosef, gives him a wife named Asenath, who is the daughter of a priest of the Egyptian religion. So a pagan, a shiksa. Yosef marries a shiksa. And her name is Asenath, and her father is Pentephrase. Now, that gave a lot of the Jews heartburn that Yosef, one of their most beloved you know, forefathers, one of their, their most beloved patriarchs, married a shiksa. How did this happen? And we'll deal with that in another episode because there is an entire apocryphal work called Yosef and Asenath that deals with how Yosef married this non-Jew and daughter of a pagan priest and how she is actually purified so he can marry her. And I'm going to say this about Yosef and Asenath. It's a fascinating text. It was outrageously popular. And it's very likely that it was canon in many local communities. It was never considered for wider canonization, frankly, because it's a little weird. There's nothing theologically weird about it. There's nothing theologically objectionable about Yosef and Asenath. But Asenath is purified. I'll go ahead and give you this spoiler. She's purified so that she can marry Yosef when an angel of the Lord, she finally prays to Yosef's God, 
and an angel appears to her and he has bees build a honeycomb on her lips and that purifies her lips that had given praise to pagan gods and so she can marry Yosef. And we'll discuss all about the details and everything of this apocryphal text in a later episode. Uh, because like I said, it was outrageously popular. It was widely used. It's, it was widely referenced by a lot of communities. It was obviously canon in some communities. And it's not theologically object objectionable. It's just a little weird, to be perfectly honest. But that's a book we'll talk about one day. So because of the standing of Yosef, there is a very prosperous time for the children of Israel. But all good things come to an end, as they say. And we're told that one day there was a new Pharaoh on the throne, and he was described as, and he knew not Yosef. Well, a lot of people assume that this Pharaoh was the Pharaoh that ordered the murder of the firstborn. I don't know why they make that assumption, but I've actually had, well, you know, this was the guy that killed all the babies. Actually, no. It was one of his ancestors. Because you have to understand that the Pharaoh that knew not Yosef is the one who put them in bondage. And they're in bondage for nigh unto 400 years before we get to the murder of the firstborn. Because the murder of the firstborn happens in Moses' lifetime. Okay? It happens when Moses is a babe. He's put in the Nile to escape this. So they're in bondage as slaves for 400 years before the murder of the firstborn. And one of the things that we have to remember about the murder of the firstborn is it's often portrayed as this shock troop, blitzkrieg-like event on the part of the Egyptians, that they go in, it's a night of slaughter, and that's it. And actually, when you read the text, it talks about that they hid Moses for three months. So this is not some shock troop going in one night raid. The murder of the firstborn was something that may have lasted months. It may have been a series of raids into the slave towns and the gathering up of the firstborn over time, and it may have been a policy that was in place for several months, maybe even a year, maybe even multiple years. We're not quite clear. The murder of the firstborn is a mystery in that. How long was this going on? But they hid Moses for three months. So presumably, this is not a single night of slaughter. So that's one thing to understand that we get out of the Hebrew and the Greek text is that this is something that was an ongoing thing for some time. Who was the Pharaoh that ordered the murder of the firstborn? Well, there's some hints in the text, but they've frankly fallen on a lot of deaf ears. There's hints in history, but they've fallen on deaf ears. People keep pointing to Ramesses. Now, it's either Ramesses or Ramses. I've seen it spelled R-A-M-A-S-E-S -E or, or, or R-A-M-S-E-S. -E I don't think it matters. It's either one. It's either Ramesses or Ramses. I've heard it pronounced and spelled both ways. 
But the Pharaoh of the Exodus that everybody wants to point to is Ramesses or Ramses II. And I'm sorry, Yul Brenner. Lord knows I'm sorry, Yul Brenner. I love Yul Brenner. He's a great actor. And I love Charlton Heston. And I love the Ten Commandments. I do. I love the Ten Commandments. There are some inaccuracies, but I love the Ten Commandments. And I love the Prince of Egypt, the cartoon version of the Prince of Egypt. There's some inaccuracies there. But, I, you know, by the way, the priests weren't named Hotep and Hoy. Uh, <laughs> we'll talk about, we'll actually talk about them in a later episode, but the priests that, that faced Moses weren't Hotep and Hoy. We actually are told who they are in the Bible. Not in Exodus, but actually it's in the Second Testament that we're actually told their names. Does anyone remember their names? Yanes and Yambres. Often spelled J-A-N-N-E-S and J-A-M-B-R-E-S. That's the Greek version of their names. It's kind of like uh, Jesus to Yeshua. His name was Yeshua, but the Greek version is Jesus. So we're told through the Greek that it's Yanes and Yambres, or Janes and Jambres. What the actual Egyptians name, Egyptian names are, we don't know, but it, it probably was something more, more similar to that than, uh, than Hotep and Hoy. Sorry. But while I love those two movies, while I love The Ten Commandments and The Prince of Egypt, they all place everything at the time of Ramses II. And even you know, in The Prince of Egypt, the character of Ramses, if you look at him and you go back and look at the, the Ten Commandments, he's very obviously styled on Yul Brenner's portrayal. Yul Brenner was great. Love him. But, sorry Yul Brenner, you had the wrong name. Ramses was not the Pharaoh of the Exodus. There is no evidence for Hebrews in Egypt at the time of Ramses, or even Seti, his father. And because of that, mainstream archaeologists and erudite academics say the Exodus never happened. And it's interesting because there is evidence for a Pharaoh of the Exodus, and the same erudite academics and mainstream archaeologists that reject the notion of an Exodus because they keep looking for it at the time of Ramesses, they, they refuse to recognize the historical evidence that it may have been an earlier Pharaoh. So let's talk about this earlier Pharaoh for a minute. Let's set this stage. The Pharaoh that likely ordered the murder of the firstborn was Ahmose I. He was succeeded by his elder son, Kamose. And Kamose reigns, and it's a little bit debated, it's less than 10 years. Uh, some people have tried to make his reign three years. I think there's more scholarly work now that says, well, it looks like it was closer to five years, and it may even have been seven years. We'll just say it was less than 10 years. He ruled less than a decade, probably ruled about five years. And then he dies. He has a lot of military campaigns, but he dies. And then his younger brother, Ahmose II, takes over. It appears that Ahmose I may have been the pharaoh of the murder of the firstborn. Then Kamose reigns for a while and dies, and then God mentions him obliquely in the Septuagint. 
And then Ahmose the second is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And the evidence for that that gets kind of overlooked by a lot of the, the mainstream archaeologists is a, it's sort of a roadside historical marker left by Ahmose the second. You know how you go to the historical sites and there'll be a bronze plaque that says historical marker? Yeah, well, guess what? We didn't start that tradition. The Egyptians actually did stuff like that. And in some, some places, they would record history on the side of temples. Sometimes it was on these great stone monuments that we call obelisks. Sometimes it was on smaller stone, you want to call them tablets, or big, they're basically great big carved boulders. And in fact, this particular one is made out of calcite. It's actually fairly soft and easy to carve. But these markers that are smaller than obelisks are called either stella or stela, S-T-E-L-A. And there is a stela from the time of Akhmose II that's carved from calcite. And it records what appears to be at least some of the plagues of Egypt. It's known as the Tempest Stone. Now the other thing that's interesting about Akhmose II is that he is famed for the expulsion of a, of a Semitic group of monotheistic people called the Hyksos. And proponents of Ahmose II as the, as the Exodus Pharaoh point to Hyksos may be a Greekized version of Hebrew. And some scholars think that the Hyksos expulsion is a historical rewrite on the part of the Egyptians to try to portray themselves in a better light and sort of help Achmose you know, the second save face after having his dignity destroyed by God and the whole of Egypt plundered by the Israelites because we're told that the Israelites, with God's permission, plundered Egypt. And the Stella of Achmose talks about what looks like some of the plagues. This is from the Stella of Achmose, and there's a few gaps in here, and when there's gaps, I'll, I'll tell you. Sky come in a tempest of rain, with darkness in the condition of the west, and the sky being in storm without cessation, louder than the cries of the voices, or cries of the voices, or some translated as uh, louder than the voices of the masses, more powerful, and there's a gap, on the mountains, louder than the sound of the underground source of the Nile that is in Elephantine. Then every house, every quarter that they, and there's a, there's a, a gap there that they think is storm and rain, reached, there's a gap. Their corpses floating on the water like skiffs of papyrus outside the palace audience chamber for a period of, there's a gap, days, there's a gap, while no torch could be lit in the two lands. That's interesting. That sounds like the plague of darkness, doesn't it? And it talks about corpses floating on the water being dumped into the Nile. Then His Majesty said, it continues, how much greater this is, the wrath of the great God, than the, pla than the plans of the gods. Now there's a couple of ways that's been translated. One way that's been translated is how much greater this is than than the wrath of the great God, than the plans of the gods, which doesn't quite make grammatical sense to us. Another way that's translated is how much greater this is, this wrath of the great God, than the plans of the gods. 
So there's a little debate on how that's translated. And it continues. And it continues on with, it, with a few other things. But what's interesting is, is that it points to a God in the singular. And it talks about wrath of this great God and plans of gods in the plural. That's interesting. I would go on with a lot of this because there's a lot of stuff surrounding this theory about Achmose II, but this would put this into a DE episode and, and would make us run about three hours. So I'm going to leave most of this, but I'm, I'm going to discuss this uh, one point here. It looks like he's talking about this tempest, that there was rain, that there's a storm without cessation. It's louder than the voices and cries of the masses. No torch could be lit in the, in the lands because it appears this is a plague of darkness. Then there's this corpses floating on the water. And some have said that with the murder of the firstborn you know, and them dumping them into the Nile before, that God recapitulates that murder in the death of the firstborn of Egypt. And that the murder of the firstborn was accomplished by dumping them in the Nile. So God, with the death of the firstborn in Egypt, has, so, has, has created a situation where there's so many bodies that they can't prepare the dead for burial in the Egyptian way before they rot. It's a time-consuming process. There's not enough resources to take care of all the bodies. And so now the bodies of the Egyptian firstborn are having to, just for sanitation, to be cast into the Nile and carried away because they can't deal within, with the numbers of the dead. And so some say that this is God's revenge for the murder of the firstborn of Israel by casting them into the Nile now God's causing the same thing to happen to them. And it's being detailed here in this stela of Achmose II. So there's a lot of evidence there. There's other evidence in other areas where it shows uh, there's actually some stela in other places which appears to show Moses uh, and the parting of the Red Sea and the drowning of the chariots. So there, there are a lot of, of, of places out there where there's evidence that the timing would indicate sometime during the reign of Kamose or Amose, and it looks like it's probably Amose with this Stella of Amose. It's probably Achmose II that's the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Okay? So I wanted to set that up for you to kind of let you know that there is evidence out there for an Exodus. And this Hyksos expulsion is probably Achmose II's historical rewrite. I am Achmose. I am the Pharaoh. I threw these Hyksos out. And a lot of people try to say that the Hyksos were this nation within a nation, that they were free and independent. Well, there's evidence, though, from the time of Achmose II in some of the constructions that were done, we found Semitic graffiti written in ancient Semitic, crying out to El, the singular form of Elohim, crying out to El, the ancient Hebrew God, for deliverance. So we know that at the time of Achmose, because this stuff has been dated to the time of Achmose, and this, this graffiti that's there has been dated to the time of Achmose the second. we know during his reign there were Semites in bondage. 
And so it appears that the portrayal of the Hyksos as a, as an inv a people that invaded and took over some of their cities and stuff may have been a historical rewrite to give Achmose II heroism in their expulsion, when in actuality these may, these may have been cities of slaves. These may have been the slave cities, the slave towns. And Achmose was forced to let them go. So it's interesting speculation. It is admittedly speculation. But there's at least some, enough circumstantial evidence that it bodes serious examination. And I can only hope that serious archaeologists will actually start examining Achmose II as a potential pharaoh of the Exodus. All right? But, like I said, I don't want to carry this on for three hours because I could go into all the details on this and it would, it would take us a while. So that sets the stage. We've got them in bondage. It looks like it may have been Achmose II that's going to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now we're going to look at this bridegroom of blood. We've got that stage set. Moses wants to become the deliverer. We're told that Moses, uh, in the Jewish tradition, had always known that he was going to be the deliverer of his people. Okay. So we'll, we'll take up with that in just a minute, but let's go back a little farther and let's establish the importance of circumcision. Let's talk about circumcision because that's going to be something that God is going to attempt to kill somebody over. So we're going to establish this next. Circumcision is established in Genesis chapter 17 as a sign of the covenant with Abraham and his line. It's important to note that Abraham knew what circumcision was. He doesn't have to get a long explanation of it by God. He knows what it is. And the reason is it's not an invention by the Jews. Other societies practice circumcision. We know from ancient Egyptian art that the Egyptians practiced circumcision. Did you know that? Most people don't. The Egyptians practiced circumcision. So did the Midianites. Tradition tells us that the Midianites practice circumcision as well. Now, there are, there are some debate as to the methods that the Egyptians used. Some, some want to say that the Egyptians just slit the foreskin, but that's not a circumcision. Circum means around. Scission means cut. So circumcision is a round cut. Circumcision, true circumcision, involves a circumferential cutting of the foreskin and removal of most of the foreskin, which in the medical terminology is called the prepuce. All right, the foreskin in the medical terminology is called the prepuce. And this prepuce covers the part of the penis. The penis is divided basically into two parts. There's what's called the shaft of the penis and there's what's called the glans penis. All right, the glans penis is also called the head of the penis. And, it's, and the prepuce covers and protects the gland's penis. Now, why is this removed? Well, there's several reasons for, for performing circumcision. Most think of religious reasons, but there are some hygienic reasons. Now, I'm going to take an aside here. I can remember a few years ago, there were some people in white pants with red spots on their groins outside a local hospital with signs, and they were protesting circumcision. And they had a couple of signs that made me laugh. One of the ones that made me laugh is they had a sign that said, it's not your mother's penis. Um, and that made me laugh for obvious reasons, but also 
because if you understand circumcision, the mother is not supposed to have anything to do with it. It's the father that is supposed to ensure that the covenant is upheld, okay? Also, there are med serious medical reasons for performing circumcision, and, and obviously these people don't understand either the covenant, the reasons behind circumcision, medically or religiously. But let's deal with the prepuce, what it does, and why medically it gets removed, and why perhaps it would have been removed religiously. So the foreskin or prepuce of the penis is there from an evolutionary standpoint. If you look at evolutionary theory, it's there to protect the gland's penis. The head of the penis serves multiple functions. One, it's where the urethra exits, and that's frankly where you urinate. It's where you pee. And if you damage the gland's penis and you get scar tissue there and it contracts and blocks up your urethra, you've got a problem because you won't be able to urinate. And frankly, that will unequivocally kill you. If you can't expel that nitrogenous waste in the form of urea in the urine, you will die, okay? So damage to the gland's penis on that end is a major medical problem. You've got to be able to urinate. You've got to be able to expel that waste. On the reproductive side, if you look at the evolutionary perspective, the whole reason for life is, the, is evolutionarily, not spiritually, evolutionarily, is you want to be able to pass on your genes and continue the species. The other function of the gland's penis is it is what is most innervated with branches of the pudendal nerve. The pudendal nerve is a dual-purpose nerve. It is both sensory and motor. The sensory portion of the nerve innervates the gland's penis, and that is stimulated during sexual intercourse. The friction of sexual intercourse stimulates the sensory portion of the pudendal nerve, which sends a signal to the spinal cord in a reflex called the pudendo-pudendal reflex. That reflex arc, as that nerve gets stimulated, and it has to be stimulated to a certain threshold because there's inhibitory signals coming from actually the brain. The brain is inhibitory in this reflex. And you have to stimulate the nerve to a certain degree until it overcomes that inhibitory signal from the brain and causes the motor portion of it to fire. That runs down to the testicles and the epididymis, particularly, and triggers ejaculation. And that ejaculation serves to deposit sperm in the vagina, thus allowing fertilization for the making of babies. So, yeah, you just got a birds and the bees talk here on a religious podcast. I, I understand that. But we have to understand this context, and we have to understand it cleanly, medically, and not vulgarly, and understand what these functions are. We, we've just got to deal with this like adults. Now, Back in the deeps of time, from the evolutionary perspective, when our ancestors were running around naked, the benefits of having a protective sheath over your sexual organ are pretty obvious. You don't want splinters. You don't want the sun to potentially burn the head of the penis, right? Because that can cause damage. You don't want splinters in there. You don't want it to get lacerated. You don't want it to get... Um, attacked by insects, nothing like getting a mosquito bite on the head of your penis, right? That would be terrible. 
you, you know, and, and you could get potential infections from this. So having a sheath to protect your sexual and waste disposal, one of, at least one of your waste disposal organs, makes a lot of evolutionary sense. But with the advent of clothing, the necessity of the prepuce becomes a bit dubious. And so at some point, people discovered that they could remove it. Now, we're not exactly clear on why people decide to start practicing circumcision and removing the prepuce, but it appears it starts as a religious fertility rite, pagan-wise. It starts as some sort of fertility rite, as, as a, you know, a sacrifice part of my organ to the God in exchange for more fertility. That's one theory of how it became sort of practiced. But it becomes popular because of something that's an interesting side effect of removing the prepuce. Now, let me state this first before I get into that. When was this practiced? Most pagan religions that practiced circumcision did so as either a rite of passage into adulthood, so they did it around puberty, or they did it as a premarital fertility rite. Several weeks before the marriage took place, they did the circumcision as a fertility rite to help guarantee fertility in the marriage. That appears to be sort of when it was done, as this pre, you know, premarital rite or a puberty rite. The side effect, though, on disease pathology from remo removing the prepuce is kind of interesting. You see, the prepuce is made of extra skin. Skin has multiple layers. And I don't want to get into the, to, to all the layers here, but we have a stratum germinativum or stratum basale. There's a stratum spinosum. You know, there's, you know, there's a, in, in thick skin, there's, a, you know, stratum lucidum. There's, there's, and it's topped with what's called the stratum corneum. There are, there are multiple layers. I'm not going to get into that. I could get into it, but I'm not going to. But the stratum corneum is the protective, keratinized, dead layer of skin on the top. Now, this keratinized layer protects us. And the keratin actually starts getting laid down you know, as, as the cells move from the stratum basale or stratum germinativum into the stratum spinosum, they begin to keratinize. Then you get to a stratum granulosum. In thick skin, like the sole of your feet, you have a stratum lucidum, and then there's a stratum corneum. And this cornified, keratinized, skin not only protects you, but you shed it constantly. And that's true on the prepuce as well. Here's the thing. The prepuce covers the gland's penis, so it kind of ducks back in, right? It's, it's a sheath. Inside the sheath, as you slough those dead skin cells, and you've got oils in your skin, right, that keeps your skin moist, that stuff mixes together, and it's trapped up in there where it's moist and it collects. Specifically, if you look at the gland's penis, it has a ridge on the back, and it tends to collect back behind that ridge. And it forms a, a substance which is oily to waxy. It gets laden with bacteria, frankly, because this oily, keratinized, protein-rich material, which is called smegma, is a wonderful bacterial growth medium. It's full of fats, which is your oils, 
proteins and the bacteria can break it down and multiply. And so what happens with smegma is as it forms from dead skin and oily secretions as well as the moisture in the skin, it sets up behind the ridge of the glands penis. It grows bacteria, becomes a malodorous, really smelly material, and it sits there growing bacteria. And during sexual intercourse, it gets deposited into the woman's vagina. And what happens is, with this dense bacteria-laden smegma being deposited, and the urethra very close to the vagina, the urethra is not in the vagina, but it's close to the vagina, those bacteria seed the vaginal tract and the urinary tract of the woman. And she gets infections. More specifically, UTIs. And when you are living in ancient Egypt or someplace like that where, you know, you've got thousands of years before someone gets the bright idea that there's a germ, you know, a, a germ transmission of disease, and then there's even longer before someone gets the bright idea that, hey, we can use mold because it produces substances that we can use to kill bacteria and they invent antibiotics. You got thousands of years before that stuff happens. You get a UTI. It sets up a, a urinary tract infection in the urethra. It moves up the bladder, gives you a bladder infection. Then it moves up the ureters and gets into the kidneys. So you get a kidney infection, which is called a renal infection. And once you've got a renal infection, you're pretty much a goner. There's no antibiotics. And in those days, if you can't fight it off, you're dead. And so what likely happened is that there was quite a bit of mortality with women who were getting exposed to men who had very poor hygiene. Because in order to clean out that smegma, you have to pull the prepuce back as far as you can, get behind the head of the, of the penis, get behind that ridge of the gland's penis, and wash that out. Most men in modern times don't have that issue because most men are taught basic hygiene that you've got to clean your penis. Back then, they weren't taught this. And so smegma would build up. They thought it was just normal, and women got UTIs and very often died. And at some point, as part of this fertility rite, they began to remove the prepuce. And even if they did not specifically begin washing the penis, without that prepuce, the smegma didn't build up as much. There's not as much skin there to hold that stuff in. And so just with routine bathing, water would be able to get up in there much better and clean that out. And what very likely happened and what a lot of historians think happened is that this practice of circumcision becomes blessed by the gods because the priests notice that those people that go through this rite, their women have a lot lower mortality rate. There's a lot less illness among the women who are married to men who go through this religious rite. So this religious rite becomes blessed by the gods in their terminology. And that's, again, that's a controversial theory, but that's one theory of how circumcision gets started. Because we do know that smegma is bacterially rich 
and it can set people up for infections. And it is highly encouraged by the medical community to this day to clean that out because we know that sets women up for infections and can't even set the men up themselves if it builds up long enough. And so that's one of the medical reasons for doing it, but it also may be one of the major religious reasons for doing it because once they start doing this, now they've got this cleanliness going on and they see this rite as being blessed by the gods. So there's, there's one reason it may have been practiced. But what's unique about the Jews is that God specifically tells them to do it to the children. God doesn't tell them to do this as a puberty rite or a fertility rite before marriage. He tells them you're going to do it on day eight after the kid's born. And here is what the Bible actually says about circumcision. Here's Septuagint. And this is the covenant. By the way, this is, again, remember, it's chapter 17 of Genesis, and we're starting with verse 10, Septuagint. And this is the covenant which you shall fulfill between me and you. One translation says, this is the covenant which you shall fully keep. The other says it shall that you shall fulfill. Either way. Between me and you, and between your seed after you for their generations. Every male you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and you. And the child of eight days shall be circumcised by you, every male throughout your generations. And the servant born in the house, and he that is bought with money of every son of a stranger who is not of your seed, he that is born in your house, and he that is bought with money, shall surely be circumcised. And my covenant shall be on your flesh, for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male who shall not be circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin on the eighth day, that soul shall be utterly destroyed from its family, for he has broken my covenant. Here's the Masoretic text. I'll go ahead and tell you the Dead Sea Scrolls, Murphy got us. This is pretty much lost in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we're just going to deal with the Septuagint and the Masoretic. Here's the Masoretic. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. And a son of eight days shall be circumcised among you every male in your generation. He that is born in the house or bought with silver from any son of a stranger who is not of your seed. Surely the child of your house and the purchase of your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for a perpetual covenant. And an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, his soul shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Now I want to point out a couple of things here. God says you're to be cut off if you're not circumcised. It has to be done on day eight. And I'm going to point out something here that a lot of people find offensive. But remember, God's not worried about whether you're or not you're, you're offended by Him. You're His creation. He, he doesn't have to worry about offending you. You have to worry about offending Him. Okay? I mean, I'm just going to give that to you straight. God talks about you have to circumcise your slaves. And this gives people a lot of heartburn. People want to say, well, God doesn't like slavery. He doesn't believe in slavery. Well, 
I will agree because God says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you would enslave somebody, then you are doing unto others as you would want done to you. Well, I don't ever want to be a slave. And since I don't ever want to be a slave, that tells me I don't have the right to enslave anybody. Okay? So I will agree that God obliquely tells us we should not enslave people. But He never specifically bans it, and He does give instructions for how you treat your slaves. And He gives instructions that, sl that slaves are to be treated humanely with respect as human beings. But He also says, if, you, if you're part of my covenant and you buy a slave, it doesn't matter if that slave wants to consent or not, he's got to be circumcised. Okay? And I know that gives people a lot of heartburn to see that God addresses slavery and says that you're going to do something even if it's against your slave's will. He's got to be circumcised, but God commands it. I'm not going to tell you that God conforms to our moral values. God has His moral values, and we're to conform to His. And that's all I can say about it. And I know that gives a lot of people heartburn. And I do not like the notion of slavery. As someone of Jewish descent myself, I have a lot of problems with slavery. And I believe doing to others as, as you know, doing to others as you would have them do unto you is pretty much a clear message that we should not enslave people. But God does make allowances for slavery because remember, He is writing to a people. He is writing to the Jews, not to us. It's for us, but it's not to us. He is writing to the Jews, and he is writing in the context of their culture. And he tells Abraham that he has to circumcise his slaves. And he does not condemn the slavery. And I know that gives people heartburn, but you have to understand that this is the Word of God, and it's not for us to take offense. We have to accept that God made allowances for that, for whatever His purposes. Okay? Now, why does God command that the Jews circumcise on the eighth day? It turns out there's a biological reason for that. Our bodies are designed with certain symbiotic relationships. And certain symbiotic relationships that happen, happen on a schedule. And God commands the Hebrews, interestingly, based on that. Now, yeah, here's some sciencey stuff, so brace yourself. Let's talk about a symbiote. When I used to teach in vet school, I actually had a vet student one time that just could not wrap her head around the fact that a parasite was actually a symbiote. She wanted that to be something separate, and it's not. Let's talk about symbiosis. Sim means together, and biosis means living. Symbiosis thus means living together. That's all it means. Okay? So it's an organ a symbiote is an organism that lives on or in another organism. And the kind of symbiotic relationship depends on how that relationship works out. And what I had to do with this vet student to finally convince her that I wasn't full of... of I guess wild blueberry muffins or whatever, I was you know, full of garbage is I had to plunk her down and plunk an ecology book in front of her and make her read it. And it just blew her mind that parasitism is a form of symbiosis, but it is. 
the ecological definition of, of symbiosis depends on a three on a three way relationship, and that and those three ways are either it's a it's positive it benefits, or it harms, or it does neither one, and so the way they note that is with a plus, a zero, or a minus. Okay, now the symbiote itself, the one living on or in the the host, is always benefited or the relationship presumably wouldn't happen. So what effect the symbiote has on its host is what determines the kind of symbiotic relationship. If the symbiote is benefited and the partner is harmed, it's a plus slash minus relationship. And this is parasitic. If the symbiote is benefited, but the host is neither benefited nor harmed, it's a plus slash zero or null relationship, and it's commensal. If both are benefited, it's a plus slash plus relationship, and it's just called mutualistic. All right? So let's give some examples. If you've got a tapeworm living in your gut, the tapeworm's taking nutrients from you. It's not giving you anything in return. You're actually getting robbed, but it's benefiting. That's a parasite. Hookworm, same thing, right? Hookworms, pinworms, any kind, any kind of parasite like that. It's benefiting. You're harmed, so it's a parasitic symbiosis. That's a parasitic relationship. Look at an orchid that is on a tree trunk. The orchid is not sucking juice out of the tree. It's just attached to the tree because it's able to get up on the tree and get sunlight. It's able to collect any of the dust and dirt that collects on the branch and stuff and get nutrients from that. And as the outer dead bark decomposes, it's able to get some nutrients from that. But it's not actually taking nutrients from the living tree, just the rotting, dead, sloughing bark. So what we have here is a symbiote that is attached to the tree, it's elevated so it can get sunlight, it's living off some nutrition that it can get as things decompose, but it's not taking anything from the tree. So it's not benefiting or harming the tree, but it is benefited. So the orchid is a commensal. It's in a commensal relationship with the tree. It's not harming the tree, it's not benefiting the tree, but it's getting something out of the relationship. Then we've got mutualistic relationships, and there's a lot of different examples of that in our own gut. Mainly, one of the relationships that we see that's, benef that's beneficial is this relationship we see with bacteria. Now these mutualist bacteria, we have to have because we have certain factors in our body called clotting factors that depend on a vitamin called vitamin K. And there are bacteria that grow in our gut that actually produce either vitamin K or its precursors. Uh, bacteria like Enterobacter aglomerans, Serratia, uh, Marcessans, uh, Enterococcus fecium, and certain strains of Escherichia coli. Now, Escherichia coli, a lot of people know E. coli because of the Jack in the Box incident. That was E. coli 0157H7 that, uh, that killed people because e E. coli 0157H7 is a strain of E. coli that produces something called shigatoxin. So there are good and bad strains of E. coli. There are strains of E. coli that live in your gut normally that produce vitamin K or, or its precursors and don't produce shigatoxin. So they're actually a mutualist with us. 
Now, for those of y'all that are medically bent or biologically bent, I'll just kind of give you a rundown on this about what vitamin K does. Vitamin K2 works as a carboxylic acid functional group to agglutinate amino acid residue in a protein. Basically what it does is it binds to this glutamate residue and it forms a gamma carboxyglutamate residue. And this modification of the protein causes two carboxylic acid groups to be on the same carbon atom and that allows that protein to chelate calcium. And when binding calcium ions in this way, it, it allows that to trigger the function or binding of this carbox, carboxyglutamate, gamma carboxyglutamate residues to enzymes that are the so-called vitamin K dependent clotting factors. And it's clotting factors two, seven, nine, and 10. The long and the short of that is that vitamin K modifies the, some of the amino acids in the proteins and it allows these vitamin K dependent enzymes to function. So there's the long and the short of it. So we have to have vitamin K, so we have to have these bacteria in our guts and their waste product becomes our vitamin. Okay. What's interesting is, is that when you're born you have very little uh, vitamin K, just what you've been able to absorb that was transferred through the milk and your gut begins to be colonized by these bacteria. There is a what we call a 100% homeostatic level. You're not at that at day one, and if you try to circumcise a kid on day one, they won't have a whole lot of clotting factors, and there's actually a real risk they could bleed to death the way it was done. Now, today they use a different method to do it that doesn't actually involve cutting it off. It's actually something that pinches it off, and then it sloughs off and falls off naturally several days later. But back then, they had to use a flint, a sharpened flint, to cut the foreskin off. And they could bleed to death day one, day two. Over the course of that, that first few days, the bacteria grow, and you actually get an increase in the amount of vitamin K in the blood steadily over several days. In fact, on day eight, it's sort of interesting, on day eight, you actually have 110% normal. Your normal homeostatic level of vitamin K is actually overshot on day eight. So you have 110%, you have more vitamin K than you will have at any time in your life, in your bloodstream, on day eight. So your clotting factors are actually hyperactive on day eight when God says to do this. So there is method in the madness, right? There's method in what God said. God said do this on day eight because that's when the clotting factors have maximal efficiency because there is maximal availability of vitamin K even beyond the homeostatic normal that later gets set in the subsequent days. So there's reason in what God's doing. But, something that has to be hammered home here is that the Jews were not the originators nor the ones that, that uh, practiced circumcision and were alone in this. Okay, They were not the originators and they're not the ones that practiced it all on their own. Other people did it. The Midianites did it. It's unclear if they did it as a puberty rite or a, uh, as a premarital rite, but the Midianites practiced circumcision. The, it looks like the Canaanites even practiced it. The, the Egyptians practiced it. 
it was actually fairly widely practiced in that region. The difference is the Jews did it to kids. And many of these other societies that practiced circumcision regarded using this technique on children as barbaric. So you have to understand this. Now, I don't want to be flippant here, but I'm going to go ahead and answer the question that's probably on people's minds. Why does God want circumcision to be the sign of the covenant? Well, I'm not trying to be flippant. It might make more sense if it was something that was seen, right? But there, there are strict modesty laws that are put forth in the Jewish in the Jewish law. God has modesty laws. So why would he want the circumcision, the sign of the covenant to be in a man's penis? It, it doesn't, you don't walk around and display the circumcised penis. I'm just going to say it. You don't do that. So it's an unseen symbol for the most part. So it, I don't understand it. And I don't think anybody understands it. God doesn't explain it. It would make more sense if it was if it was an outward sign. Most religious sects that had some scarification of the body or tattooing of the body or something did so in a visible way to proclaim that they were part of this religion. Circumcising the penis and then covering it up, which is required in the modesty laws of the, of the Jews, doesn't seem on the surface to make a whole lot of sense. So the only answer I can give is I don't know. I do not know why God requires circumcision. But He does. And He's serious about it, as we're going to see, because He actually threatens to kill somebody because of a circumcision not being done. Okay? And that brings us to Exodus chapter 4. Now I'm going to go ahead and note that Murphy gets us with the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's frustrating, but verses 18 through 25 and most of verse 26 are missing. So the bridegroom of blood incident is lost. I'm going to tell you though that when we study this, we're going to see that there's a discrepancy of minor theological concern, but of some major implications from a tradition standpoint between the Septuagint and the Masoretic text. But the major thrust of this incident is that someone is trying to kill someone else and circumcision seems to be the issue. And the first someone is either God or an angel and he's trying to kill someone in Moses' party. But before we get into who's doing what to whom, let's get a little more context, okay? Let's get some more context in this. I want maximal context because this is a very difficult passage to understand. So we need as much context as we can to understand just how confusing this text is, okay? The first thing we need to notice before we dissect the bridegroom of blood incident is to dissect chapter 4 of Exodus a little bit. Because what we see is that God is spending quite a bit of, of time and effort grooming Moses. Now, the Jewish tradition is that Moses always knew he was supposed to deliver his people. And that he tries to deliver his people way back in Exodus chapter 2 with unrighteous means. 
that gets him branded a murderer and he has to flee Egypt. And if you look at, at Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, Moses murders an Egyptian. Now he's raised in the house of Pharaoh, but he murders an Egyptian and he has to flee Egypt. Apparently he doesn't take his wife with him. Now, we'll get into that in a little bit because we'll find out he was actually married at this time. He was actually married to someone before he flees to Midian. He apparently doesn't take his wife with him and he flees and goes through a sort of wandering purging of his sin as it were. It was sort of a wandering penance as he wanders in the desert and makes his way to Midian. He then resides in Midian and hitches his life to the Midianites by marrying into them and marrying their high priest Jethro's daughter Zipporah. And then after some time, he spends years, about, about 40 years or so, he spends. And then God decides, okay, it's time to, to activate Moses as the deliverer. And he starts to groom Moses. Now, what's interesting is, is Moses gets this divine visitation. He is shown miracles. He is told that he is to be the deliverer and he's told to go and Moses just isn't feeling it. He is not feeling froggy and he doesn't jump. Note these passages. God calls Moses, shows him miracles. Moses makes excuses. God gets angry, accommodates Moses. And then we're going to find out Moses procrastinates again. So let's start with Exodus chapter 4. We'll start with verse 10. Here is the Septuagint. And Moses said to the Lord, I pray, Lord, I have not been sufficient before yesterday, neither before the third day, neither from the time you have begun to speak to your servant. I am weak in speech and slow-tongued. And the Lord said to Moses, Who has given a mouth to man? Who has made the unable to speak, and the deaf, and the seeing, and the blind? Some people translate that as, who, is, who has made the mute and the deaf and the seeing and the blind? Have not I, God? And now go. I will open your mouth and will instruct you in what you shall say. And Moses said, I pray you, Lord, appoint another able person whom you shall send. And the Lord was greatly angered against Moses and said, Behold, is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he will surely speak to you. And behold, he will come forth to meet you. And beholding you, he will rejoice within himself. Okay? So that's the Septuagint. Here's another translation of the Septuagint that I want to leave you with. Starting with verse 10 again. Then Moses said to the Lord, I pray, O Lord, I am not capable, neither before nor since you spoke to your servant, but I am weak in speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who made the mute, the deaf, the seeing, and the blind? Did, I, did not I, God? Now therefore go, and I will open your mouth and teach you what you shall say. But he said, meaning Moses, I pray, O Lord, appoint another capable one whom you may send. And the Lord was very angry with Moses and said, 
Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he will speak for you. And indeed, he will come out to meet you. And indeed, when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So there's two versions of the Septuagint. Here's the Masoretic. And Moses said to Jehovah, O Lord, I'm not a man of words, either from yesterday or the third day, nor since you've been speaking to your bond slave. I am slow of mouth and slow of tongue. And Jehovah said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Or who makes the dumb, or the deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Is it not I, Jehovah? And now go, I will be with you, I will be with your mouth, and I will teach you what you shall speak. And he said, O Lord, please send the hand of him who you will send. And the anger of Jehovah glowed against Moses, and he said, I, excuse me, and he said, Do I not know your brother Aaron the Levite, that he can speak well? And behold, he also is coming out to meet you, and he will see you and be glad in his heart. Now, there's been a lot of debate about Moses' excuse. Some have said that Moses had a speech impediment of some kind. And I've heard everything from he, from he talked like Elmer Fudd. You know, I've heard that. I, I doubt that. I've heard some people say that, that uh, he had, had real trouble forming words and, 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 and perhaps had, had, had a, def, a cleft palate or something like that. There's a lot of speculation. I think most people, and I think the, the Jewish tradition tends to say, that stuttering was most likely his problem. And I've known some people with stutters, and I don't want to make fun of anybody with stutter, okay? Stuttering, though, can destroy a person's confidence. And if you can imagine this, let's assume Moses had a stutter. And let's just think about his mind here. And again, I'm not saying this, and I'm not doing this to make fun of someone with a stutter. But think about this from Moses' perspective. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go up before Pharaoh, and I've got a stutter, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to be doing something like this. I've come to see you, Pharaoh. He's thinking to himself, he's going to be doing this. I mean, this is assuming he has a stutter. He's thinking this is what's going to happen to him. Because most people with a stutter, as they get nervous, the stutter gets worse, right? You can see how Moses is terrified of going before Pharaoh and doing something like this. Your heart kind of got to go out. You know, your, your heart's got to go out to Moses here a little bit. If he has a stutter, Pharaoh's going to look at him and say, get him out of here. He's wasting my time. You know, people are not very tolerant and not very patient with people with a stutter. They're not now, and they weren't then. What's interesting here is that he has a legitimate complaint. And we know that because what does God say? If you go back to the Septuagint, he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he can speak either to you or for you, depending on the translation. The Masoretic says, I know he can speak well. So he's going to let Aaron speak for him because Aaron evidently doesn't have a speech problem. So what we can say pretty unequivocally is the fact that even though you see Moses making excuses and God getting miffed at him, 
he does concede a little bit that Moses has a legitimate complaint. And he accommodates Moses. But what's the anger about? The anger is not that he has a legitimate complaint. But God says, what does he say in the Septuagint? He says, now go, I will open your mouth and will instruct you in what you shall say. Masoretic. Now go, I will be with your mouth or I will be with you and your mouth or I will be with you through your mouth. There's several different translations on that. But now go, I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what, to, what you shall speak. In both of these, even though they're slightly different, God's saying, I'm going to get put the words in your mouth and you're going to speak them. And I'm not trying to be flippant, but there was a singer called Mel Tillis. You know, he could sing, but he, he stuttered very badly when he spoke. If Moses had had faith, God could have told him, go sing it to Pharaoh. And Moses would be like, okay. And he'd have gone. What's making God angry here isn't the fact that Moses has a stutter. And that's assumed. But that he has a stutter, whatever his impediment was. God knows he's got it. God acknowledges it's legitimate and sends Aaron to help him with it when, when Moses complains about it. It's not that Moses had a legitimate complaint. It's after he told him, I'm going to open your mouth. And he still is saying, my stutter is, is greater than God. That's basically what he's saying. Moses does not have the faith here. That's what makes God angry. If Moses had had the faith, God could have said, look, I know you don't understand this reference yet, but there's a guy named Mel Tullis who stutters like you, and, but he can sing. So I'm going to tell you, do a Mel Tullis. Go sing to Pharaoh. It'll be all right. If, if Moses had had faith, God could have said something like that to him, and Moses would have gone. So God's not angry that, that Moses has a legitimate complaint. God is angry because Moses doesn't show the faith when God says, I'm going to be with you and I'm going to teach you what to say. So I just want to point that out. Now, again, like I said, there's been much debate about his excuse. Most people think he may have had a stutter. But God, like I said in summation, gets mad because he doesn't show faith. And he becomes a, and he becomes a procrastinator. But, 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 right? Moses is a but man. He's a but, 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 but. God, but, 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 I have a problem, but, 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 he's a but guy. He is a procrastinator. What's even funnier in a way is that even after this and after God's anger is roused against Moses, but he does accommodate Moses, Moses still looks for an excuse not to go. Really? Let's look. Moses gets told to go. He's still got obligations to Jethro. So he asks his father-in-law for permission to go. But notice he doesn't tell Jethro, God told me to do this. Jethro's a Yahweh worshiper. If he'd have said, hey, the big boss, the big dude, just told me to go do this, it would have guaranteed Jethro's assent. Moses doesn't do this. He doesn't tell Jethro where this instruction's coming from. Instead, he goes and says, I want to check on my, my family. 
He's hoping, or apparently, it's sort of, you can infer from this, and it, I think more or less implied from this in the, in the Septuagint version, that Moses is hoping for an excuse to stay around. He's, he's kind of hoping Jethro won't let him go. But Jethro does release him, telling him to go in health in the Septuagint and, going, and tell him to go in peace in the Masoretic. Well, being released by Jethro and not having any burdens anymore, our hero, free from his duties, sets out like a knight errant of old, right? Eh, wrong. No. He procrastinates. Don't believe me? Let's look again. And let's look at the Septuagint. All right, here's the Septuagint. And Moses went and returned to Jothor, his father-in-law. Jothor is the Greek version, right? Jothor, his father-in-law. And said, I will go and return to my brethren in Egypt and will see if they are yet living. Another translation is, I would. He's actually asking permission. When they translate this, I will, it sounds like he's ordering Jethro. And that's actually not what it is. Uh, it's better translated. There's another translation that translates this as, I would go. In other words, I would like to. So, and Moses went and returned to Jothor, his father-in-law, and said, I would go and return to my brethren in Egypt and would see if they are yet living. And Jothor said to Moses, Go and help. Pay attention to this. And in those days, after some time, the king of Egypt died. Verse 19, And the, and the Lord said to Moses in Madiam, which is Septuagint version for, for Midian, Go, depart into Egypt, for all that sought your life are dead. So let's lead, read that through one more time. I want you to listen to the Septuagint version. And Moses went and returned to Jothor his father-in-law and said, I would go and return unto my brethren in Egypt and would see if they are yet living. And Jothor said to Moses, Go in health. And in those days, after some time, the king of Egypt died. And the Lord said to Moses in Madiam, Go, depart into Egypt, for all that sought your life are dead. Huh. The Septuagint gives us a little extra insight into something that the Masoretic text doesn't. Because in the Masoretic text, it doesn't say, and in those days after some time, the king of Egypt died. It doesn't say that in the Masoretic at all. What it says in the Masoretic text is this. And Moses went and returned to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brothers who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And Jehovah said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all the men are dead, those seeking your life. The Septuagint version lets us know that even after Jethro gives him permission to go, Moses waits around. And in that time, the king of Egypt died. Now, which king of Egypt is this? Well, if the I was the murderer of the firstborn Pharaoh, and the II is the Pharaoh of the Exodus, then this means this is probably Kamose. This is the II's older brother that ruled for three, five, maybe outside seven years. 
So this would suggest that Kamose and Amose the first were seeking his life, but the younger brother that Moses was raised with, Achmose the second, it wasn't seeking his life. This puts things into a little more context, but it also shows us and helps us make sense of verse 19. Because without that extra insight from verse 18 of the Septuagint, it doesn't really make sense why God gives Moses a sudden reminder. It makes more sense in the Septuagint version. Moses waited around for a while longer after getting permission to go from his father-in-law. That's very interesting. Okay? So, let's read this passage, and now we're going to get into him finally leaving, right? Because God's giving him a reminder. So, we'll pick it up again at verse 18 just to, to, to give us the whole scene. And Moses went and returned to Jothor his father-in-law and said, I would go and return unto my brethren in Egypt and would see if they are yet living. And Jothor said to Moses, Go in health. And in those days, after some time, the king of Egypt died. And the Lord said to Moses in Madiam, Go, depart into Egypt, for all that sought your life are dead. And Moses took his wife and his children and mounted them on the beasts and returned to Egypt. And Moses took the rod which he had from God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go and return to Egypt, see all the miracles I have charged you with. You shall work before Pharaoh, and I will harden his heart, and he shall certainly not send the people away. And you shall say to Pharaoh, These things says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, Send away my people that they may serve me. Now if you will not send them away, see, I will kill your firstborn son. Now here we start in verse 24. And it came to pass that the angel of the Lord met him by the way in the inn and sought to kill him. And Sipporah, having taken a stone, cut off the foreskin of her son and fell at his feet and said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. And he departed from him because she said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. And then verse 27 starts and talks about the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went to meet him in the Mount of God and they kissed each other. All right? So that's, that starts his meeting with Aaron. That is Septuagint. Here's Masoretic. And Moses went and returned to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, please let me go and return to my brothers who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And Jehovah said to Moses and Midian, Go, return to Egypt, for all men are dead, those seeking your life. And Moses took his wife and his sons and made them ride an ass. And he returned to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And Jehovah said to Moses, As you go to return to Egypt, see all the wonders which I have put in your hand, and do them before Pharaoh. And I will harden his heart, and he will not send the people away. But you shall speak to Pharaoh, so says Jehovah, My son, my firstborn, is Israel. And I, <clears throat> and I said to you, Send my son away and let him serve me. And you refuse to send him. Behold, I am about to kill your son, your firstborn. And it happened on the way in the lodging place. Jehovah met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a stone and cut off her, for, her, her son's foreskin and caused it to touch his feet. 
And she said, You are a bridegroom of bloods to me. And he pulled back from him. Then she said, A bridegroom of bloods for the circumcision. So that's the Masoretic. Something to note, in some translations, that some translators adulterate the text by adding names that are not in the original texts. Note, the only ones named in the Masoretic text are Yehovah and Zipporah in verses 24, 25, and 26. Yehovah and Zipporah are the only ones named. In the Septuagint, the only ones named is Angel of the Lord and Zipporah in 24, 25, and 26. That's the only names. Some translators, using an interpretation, they will adulterate the text. English Standard Version will say, Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. The New King James says, Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. Moses' name does not appear in either the Masoretic or the Septuagint. This, these are adulterated texts. Okay? I'm sorry to say that, but this is taking an interpretation and trying to make it Scripture. Alright, so let's look at the different interpretations of this passage that are based on what the text actually says. First of all, I think we can pretty much say that the text is very ambiguous. You have to make some identity assumptions because names are replaced by pronouns. So who is trying to kill whom? And it came to pass, this is Septuagint, and it came to pass that the angel of the Lord met him by the way in the inn and sought to kill him. Masoretic, and it happened on the way in the lodging place. Yehovah met him and sought to kill him. Again, Dead Sea Scrolls, Murphy's Law, right? Murphy got us. So we have a slight discrepancy here. Let's deal with that first. The Septuagint says it was an angel of the Lord, while the Masoretic says it's actually God that tries to kill Moses. Well, we assume Moses. That's one of the assumptions. But it actually doesn't say it's Moses. If you actually read it, it just says him. The assumption that it's Moses comes about because God is addressing Moses in verse 23 when he's telling him what to say to Pharaoh. But he's also talking about, I'm about to kill your son, your firstborn. So some people say, well, maybe it's the son, the firstborn, that he's trying to kill. The thing is, is we don't really know. All right? But let's... let's Let's dig down on this and try, try to figure this out. So let's deal with the identity first of, of, of the attacker, which is either God or an angel. If this was God, there should be no trying to kill anyone. Right? The same is true with an angel. We're told that an angel kills 185,000 people at one point. He kill, an angel kills 70,000 people with plague. Angels are more than capable of dealing with humans. In fact, every time somebody runs across an angel, 
once they see it as an angel, they're stricken with abject terror. Angels are frightening, are frightening creatures. They're not only frightening creatures, they are as powerful as God decides they want to be. Okay? If God decides they need X amount of power, they've got X amount of power. If God says they don't need that much power, they don't have that much power. An angel is exactly as powerful as God decides it needs to be. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, first of all, this passage talking about that God or an angel is trying to kill someone and yet they survive. Now that's the first thing we're just going to have to deal with. Part of this is that this is Moses' text. It's the Holy Spirit inspiring Moses true. But it's also, some of this is written in Moses' culture, his cultural point of view, and some of it's just written from his experience point of view. This trying to kill someone is Moses' point of view. I don't think you can make a very supportable argument that God was actually seriously trying to kill someone or they'd be dead. We're talking about the creator of the universe who created from nothing. Remember, bara, to create from nothing. Barashit, bara, Elohim, right? The first words of the Bible. In the, in the absolute beginning, the all-encompassing one God created from nothing and then the heaven and the earth, right? He creates the heaven and the earth. And he can't kill a puny human? No. That's not the case here. And if you study the Jewish tradition, you'll understand why God is trying, but apparently not succeeding, in killing someone. He's not really trying. He's making a point. The Jewish tradition would point to this as a red flag that shows that God wants you to see something here and stop and meditate on the passage. Anytime a passage makes no sense at first read, you need to put your thinking caps on and dig for what God's trying to show you. So the fact that God or his angel is trying to kill somebody and they and, and he's having to try and it's not happening doesn't make sense. If God wants you dead, you're dead. If an angel is sent to kill you, you're dead. So there's a deeper meaning that needs to be looked at here. First of all, God is putting people in their place. He's using the threat of death to do it. But if God really wanted whoever it is he's, he's targeting to die, they would be dead. Understand that. And so the Jewish tradition is, is the reason that, that, that little point doesn't make sense is because God wasn't really trying to kill them, but he's illustrating it. You need to sit and look at this because this is important. Okay? Now, that deals with that first issue that we have is, is how can God try to kill somebody but they not get killed? Well, I don't know that God was that serious about killing them, but he is making them understand there's something you need to do. I said you need to do it, and by glory, you're going to do it. 
Now, as for this angel of the Lord, which is talked about in the Septuagint version versus Yehovah in the Masoretic, we're going to deal with this. You have to understand a couple of vocabulary words here. Let's talk about theophany and Christophany. Theophany is a physical appearance of God the Father in the Bible. All right? The term that they use for that is a theophany. Theos meaning deity, God. The other term we need to look at is the term Christophany. And that is an appearance of Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ, before he's born to Mary. So an appearance of Christ in the First Testament is called a Christophany. Now, not everyone agrees that a Christophany or a Theophany is what happens here. In fact, there are some Jewish scholars that will tell you where it says that God is physically appearing, it's actually not God, it's actually an angel speaking for God. So, you know, there are different views on this in different traditions. So let's look at the traditions that come out of this. The first tradition is Jesus the assassin. In this tradition, it is the idea that this angel of the Lord, that the term angel of the Lord is a reference to Yeshua before he is incarnated as the Christ. And at any time it says angel of the Lord, it's a Christophany. There are a lot of people that don't believe this. Okay, There are a lot of people that do believe this. So you'll get people fighting this out. I will say this. While the idea that Jesus appears before he is born is orthodox to some, it is heretical to others. Just understand that. Not everybody agrees. But one view of this, the Christophany view, is that this is Yeshua. This is Jesus who is trying to kill Moses or one of his kids, whoever it is the target is. So Jesus has come back, well, or not come back, he's come back in time, we could say, to be an assassin. Now, that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. Some of you are probably listening going, Jesus the assassin? That just sounds terrible. I, and I tend to agree with you. It's a hard pill to swallow that Jesus is going to come in and we don't know if there is afflicting somebody with disease or, I mean, there are some people that think that, that this is a physical manifestation of God in Jesus and that Jesus goes in there and starts really literally laying hands and choking Moses to death. There are some people that interpret the scripture that way. And whatever means, whether it was disease or an angel coming in and putting a choke hold on somebody, uh, if this is Jesus, I just have to point out, this is a far cry different character of Yeshua than we see in the Second Testament. And so for some people, the notion that angel of the Lord means Yeshua is hard to swallow because Yeshua is not an angel. And why would, if you're a Trinitarian, why would God be referred to as a messenger of the Lord, why would he refer to himself as a lesser being than he is? That's one point of view. Another point of view is an angel is an angel, and this has to be an angel. 
So the angel of the Lord is whatever angel is there to speak as if he is the Lord because he is the messenger. Okay? Another point of view is that angel of the Lord is Jesus, right? So we get so if that's the case, then Jesus is an assassin here, which is very out of character for what we see of Yeshua in the Second Testament. So just understand that this is a very controversial view that this entity that is attacking someone in Moses' party is Yeshua. It's a controversial view. Tradition two is this is Samael, not Yeshua. Now those that are not Trinitarian or don't subscribe to, or may be Trinitarian but don't subscribe to the Christophany idea, often get confused as to who this could be. They think, okay, well, it's an angel then, but what angel is it? There is an ancient Jewish tradition of the destroying angel, the angel of death. And this angel is talked about in the Enochic tradition. And his name is Samael. Now, I'm going to have to bust some people's bubbles here when, when, when you use the term Satan because Samael is a professional Satan. Now, let me, let me define a Satan here. Satan is not the devil. What? Some of you are going to be like, what? Satan is not the devil. The devil is a Satan, but Satan is not the devil. If you don't believe me, go look in your Bibles and read the story of Balaam's donkey. Remember Balaam's donkey? Now I can never, I can never envision the story of Balaam's donkey without hearing Eddie Murphy's voice come out of the donkey, thanks to the movie Shrek. Okay, I'll be honest with you, it's true. I, now every time I hear the story of Balaam's donkey, I imagine Eddie Murphy's voice coming out of the donkey. I do. But, but if you remember the story of Balaam's donkey, Balaam is a reluctant prophet. He's being sent by God somewhere. He rides an ass. He's, he's not wanting to do it. And, and an angel appears, and the ass turns aside. Balaam starts walloping it. And he starts going again where the direction he's supposed to go. He, the, the ass sees another or the same angel, and, presumably, and turns aside again. Balaam wallops it. This happens a third time, but this time when Balaam wallops the ass, the ass turns around and speaks to Balaam. At this point, Balaam's eyes are opened and he sees this angel. If you read the Hebrew, what's, what the angel says is very interesting. We're told in the text that it's an angel of the Lord. But what is actually said in the Hebrew by the angel is, I was sent to be a Satan unto you. There is actually a place in the Bible where God's wrath is referred to as a Satan. And we'll talk about those in a later episode. But you have to understand what a Satan is. The word Satan is a role. It's not an entity. The devil is a Satan. But when God tells... Um, okay, if you set the stage here, Yeshua has just talked about he's going to die. 
Peter tells him, you know, rebukes Yeshua and says, you can, basically, you can't talk like this. And Yeshua, in turn, rebukes Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. And so some people leap to this conclusion that the devil must have been inside of Peter. No, Yeshua tells you who the Satan is. In the next breath, he says, for you look with the, and it depends on your translation, the eyes of man or your, the eyes of your desire. There's several different translations there. But he basically says you're looking with human eyes and not in a, in a holy, righteous way is basically what Yeshua is saying. What he's saying is, is he's looking with the eyes of his own human nature. Our human nature is a Satan. That's what Jesus is telling him. Okay, that's what Yeshua is saying. Your human nature is a Satan to you. So what is a Satan? A Satan is defined as an adversary, an enemy, one who bars the way, one who acts as an obstacle, one who accuses, or in the court sense, a prosecutor. That's right. In the court sense, a prosecutor. When we die, the Bible talks about that. When we die, there, you know, there is a Satan who lists our crimes. And God looks in the book of life to see if they're recorded there. That Satan is not the devil. That Satan is an angel that reads out our sins and we confess to them. All right, that's one of the things that's talked about in several passages in the Bible, and we'll get to that in another episode too when we talk about the nature of Satans and what the Satans are. There are angels of God that identify themselves, like in the case with Balaam, as Satans. A Satan is an enemy, an adversary, one who bars the way, or an accuser. Okay? The, the devil is an accuser. He is told, we're told that the devil is an accuser. We're told that the devil is an enemy. He is, by definition, a Satan. But don't confuse Satan and the devil. While the devil is a Satan, and the word Satan often refers to the devil in the Second Testament, in the First Testament, it doesn't always. And our translators do us a great disservice by not using the term when it's actually used in the Hebrew. They translate it as something else. And it has caused people to have great confusion of, over what that term actually means. Okay? So in this tradition, it is Samael who is this angel of the Lord. Samael is a Satan. And what that means is he's not a devil. He is a loyal angel of the Lord. But he is God's to put it into a into a, a modern movie kind of phrase, he's God's fixer. He's the one that goes in and does the dirty jobs. In that Jewish tradition, it is Samael who goes in and kills the firstborn of Egypt. It is Samael that kills the 70,000 of Israel when David takes that census and God gives him a choice. Well... We find that out. We found that, by the way, in, in, in 2 Kingdoms 24. So David chose for himself the mortality. This is Septuagint. So David chose for himself the mortality, and they were the days of wheat and harvest. And the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from morning till noon. 
and the plague began among the people, and there died of the people from Dan even to Bersebe 70,000 men. Here we go. And the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand against Jerusalem to destroy it. And the Lord repented of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Withhold your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Ornah the Jebusite. So we see this right here, that this angel of the Lord is what's being referred to. And it says, the angel of the Lord in the Septuagint. But it's clearly not God. It's clearly not Yeshua. It is an angel because God says He repented of the evil and said to the angel, and then it said that, that He's going to stop, and the angel... Of, and it says, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Orna the Jebusite. So it clearly defines angel of the Lord as being an angel here, not part of the Godhead or not the Messiah. It is an angel. And the Hebrew tradition is this destroying angel is Samael. Now, Samael is an interesting name because you know angelic names have meaning. Samael's name means the venom of God. This is the angel that in the Enochic tradition, Enoch sees, and he tells the angel that's, that's guiding him through the heavens, Uriel, please, when I die, do not send that angel for me. Because it describes how terrible Samael is to see. Now let's look at the Masoretic text of that, of that 70,000. Uh, and Jehovah sent a plague upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And from Dan even to Beersheba, 70,000 of the people died. And the angel put forth, forth his hand to Jerusalem to destroy it. And Jehovah repented as to the evil and said to the angel who was des destroying among the people, Enough, now drop your hand. And the angel of Jehovah was near the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite. So in both the Masoretic and the Septuagint, it refers to it as being angel of the Lord, and specifically it was an angel. Okay? But in the ancient Hebrew tradition, this is Samael. Later on in 2 Kings 19.35, Samael allegedly... Uh, it's an angel, but it's said to be Samael, kills 85, uh, excuse me, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. So this view that this is an angel, specifically the destroying angel, whether you want to name him Samael or not, it further argues um, that the term angel of the Lord is a little bit deceptive in that it it is an angel who is acting as God. Now, what does that mean? Well, the New American Bible seems to make this a similar point when it points out that, uh, it makes the point that the visual form under which God appeared and spoke to men is referred to in some Old Testament text as God's angel and other texts as God himself. And this would be consistent with the usage of the ancient spokesman. All right, so the ancient spokesman tradition is this. When a king tells a spokesman to go and deliver a message, the spokesman comes and says, I am the spokesman of the king. You know, he says, hear, hear you, or, or some introductory phrase, hear you the words of the king. 
I am the king, and I decree X, Y, and Z. So what happens is, this ancient spokesman, after an introductory phrase, they use the grammatical first-person point of view in stating the message of whomever they represented. So one of the things that you see with Angel of the Lord is Angel of the Lord may not be a Christophany or a Theophany. It may not be an appearance of the Messiah or appearance of God. It may be an angel acting within the culture of the time in the ancient spokesman context saying, I am the Lord God, I have commanded this. And the angel is the one actually saying this because he is quoting God in the first person. And that was the ancient tradition of how the spokesman worked. They took on the identity of the person they were speaking for in that message. It wasn't they had their authority and they weren't actually, it wasn't actually the king or the angel wasn't actually God, but in the speaking of the message, this is God because he's a direct quote, first person getting every word right. And this is why the angel of the Lord, in this view, the angel of the Lord has to be an angel. That's that this is that tradition, because that tradition was around then. And it also shows in Second Kingdoms, when it says, Angel of the Lord stretched out his hand against Jerusalem, God told him it was enough. It's clearly not part of the Godhead. It's clearly not the Messiah. It is clearly an angel, and yet it's called the Angel of the Lord. Other people that try to make Angel of the Lord be Yeshua try to say, well, sometimes it says an Angel of the Lord, sometimes it says the Angel of the Lord. But that's, that's cherry-picking because there are clearly places where the angel of the Lord is used and it's clearly defined through the context of the passage as being an angel with God speaking to the angel. Okay? So I just want to clear that up, that that's two views. One view is, is this is Yeshua coming down as an assassin. Another is that this is an angel, and in particular one view is that this is Samael. Now, another view, as we've sort of hinted on, is that this is actually God the Father himself and that this is a theophany. But again, the same arguments hold. If this is a theophany, you know, I mean, that's fine and all. It could well be. But again, angel of the Lord is used, at least in the Septuagint version. So, it, you know, it's kind of hard, it, it, it's, it's kind of hard to, to understand why God the Father would identif be identified as an angel, as his, why God would identify himself as his messenger rather than, than God. And so, again, that's three possible views, that this is God the Father, that this is Jesus, or that this is an angel and one of the views of the angel is that this is specifically the destroying angel, the one that will be summoned later to destroy the firstborn of the, of the Egyptians, and this is Samael. So just understand, there's, there's three views. <clears throat> so, there's some ambiguity as to actually who this supposed assassin or would-be assassin is, granted. But the argument still holds water that it's nonsensical because if God wanted Moses dead, Moses would be dead, right? So let's, let's read the passage again and try to figure out who's getting the blunt, you know, 
who's getting the blunt end of the stick here? In other words, who's getting sort of beaten down? Who is the object of the rage? And it came to pass that the angel of the Lord met him by the way in the inn and sought to kill him. And Sipporah, having taken a stone, cut off the foreskin of her son and fell at his feet and said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. And he departed from him because he, she said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. Masoretic. And it happened on the way in the lodging place. Yehovah met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a stone and cut off her son's foreskin and caused it to touch his feet. And she said, You are a bridegroom of bloods to me. So here are the characters. Angel of the Lord or God. Not clear there. Theologically though, does it make a difference? Mm, not really. The next character is Zipporah, wife of Moses. One of Moses' sons, we don't know which one, and this his, the one who was touched with the foreskin if we're looking at the Masoretic. So before we try to untangle this knot, let's look at the rest of the knot because there's a lot of other tangles here we're going to have to look at. And one of the tangles involves the word feet. So let's get this untangled first. Feet is a problematic term in Hebrew as it can have multiple meanings. On the one hand, feet can literally mean feet. It can also mean legs, as in the calves or, or shins, and it can, mean, it can also mean the thighs. But it can also mean the genitals. The problem is that it gets confusing as to the meaning in any particular passage because of this. Here's some examples of, of passages that can be interpreted either way. When Saul went into a cave to urinate or defecate, we're told he went in to cover his feet. Alright, so this is 1 Kingdoms or 1 Samuel 24.3. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet. So one view is he dropped his tunics, took a squat, and, and thus literally was covering his feet. And covering his feet is possibly a euphemism for defecating. Another point of view is he opens his fly, as we would say today. In other words, he parts his robe or pulls up his robe, exposing his penis so he can urinate. And so in that, if that's the case, then covering his feet could be a euphemism for the exposure of the penis and or urinating. All right, when a baby is born, it comes out between its mother's feet. Look at Deuteronomy 28.57. And toward her young, one that cometh out from between her feet. Well, kids aren't born from between your feet. You could argue in our parlance that they come out from between our thighs, right? That may be one, one thing you can use. But the other view is, it's may not, feet may not be referring to thighs here. It may be actually referring to her vagina because that's what the baby comes out of. So Ruth, if we look in the, if we look in the, the book of Ruth, and we'll look at 3, 3, 3, 7, 3, 8, and 3, 14. Because we're going to talk about Boaz's feet. All right, here's the scripture. And it, shall, and it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And then 
that's three 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 seven. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of corn. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. All right, that was three seven. Here's three eight. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And she and then three fourteen. And she laid his feet until morning. One interpretation that you'll find is, is that she uncovered his feet, but why would there be foot modesty? What's that? What's uncovering someone's feet got to do with a marriage proposal? Because that's what this is. It's a marriage proposal. Well, it may not be modesty, but may be a representation of submission. And in this view, it means she literally curled up around his feet, the things he walks on, as an act of complete submission, almost saying, I am under your feet. So that's one view. But it may have been his genitals. Some scholars say that one of the traditions at this time was something like this, that you went in and pulled up his robe and exposed his genitals, and that she laid down in like a spooning position, though she was not exposed, but he was and that this was a blatant marriage proposal, not an invitation to fornication because his genitals are exposed but not hers. But it's a very blatant marriage proposal. And so some scholars have suggested that's what's going on here. And you can actually find, find that. And I think actually, uh, uh, I think Chuck Missler is one of the, the pastors, I think, that talked about, talked about that view. Um, let's look at David. David, after knocking up Uriah's wife, right? To put it in, in modern parlance, he knocked up his, his friend's wife. So remember, David sees Bathsheba bathing on the, on the roof, and she knew, you know, she could be seen from there. She wasn't innocent in all this. And he has an affair with Bathsheba, who is Uriah's wife. He gets her pregnant. So he gets Uriah to come home, and he tells Uriah... In 2 Samuel or uh, 2 Kingdoms 11.8, uh, David said unto Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. Now there's two views on that. But we do see in 11.11, in 11, 11, just a few verses later, that Uriah, Uriah refused to lie with his wife. Okay, So one interpretation is that this meant, as it was written, to go wash your feet, and that, and that means... Go, make yourself at home, go to your house and take a load off. But the context of this entire story is adultery. There's a bastard child that is David's, and David is trying to cover it up by getting Uriah to go have sex with his wife so it can look like the bastard child of David is actually Uriah's legitimate child. And so this plot by David to try to get Uriah to basically take the fatherhood of a child that's not his shows his ulterior motive and Uriah going home to wash his feet very clearly for David at least has the 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 unspoken connotation of go home and have sex with your wife now, admittedly, this is weird to us in this day and age that our boss or a president or a king would go tell someone to go home and have sex with their spouse. But others point out that in, in, in ancient times, yeah, kings got in people's business. And when there were disputes between husband and wife, uh, kings would sometimes step in 
or lords or whatever of the of the of the manor would step in and, and order reconciliation and work and order them to go have sex with their wives and 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 you know sweep all this under the rug get intimate and sweep all this under the rug and make peace with each other so this is plausible it's plausible that that go wash your feet actually means go have sex with your wife what's really blatant is Ezekiel Ezekiel condemns whoredom when he talks about a woman who opens her feet to everyone. Alright? That's Ezekiel 16.25. Thou hast opened thy feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. Now, we know that sex doesn't have anything to do with the feet. You don't open your feet. You open your vagina. Okay, this is very clearly what is meant here. You, that, that, to, that to open thy feet is to let everyone between your legs, as we would say today. It is to let everyone in your vagina. That's what he's saying. That this, this, this woman, and actually it's probably Israel he's talking about here. If you actually read the passage, it's really Israel as, a, as playing the whore. But uh, this, this, this condemnation of whoredom is very blatant but you notice rather than saying you spread your legs or you let everyone in your vagina they say you opened your feet that was the Hebrew idiom and that is very blatant and there's no way to really make a different interpretation of that so their feet is very clearly used for genitals so Isaiah's seraphim modestly cover their feet with their wings and this is interesting because it may mean feet legs or genitals and most Jewish scholars say that this may, be, may, may mean two out of the three or all three. And that, that's Isaiah 6, 2. Above it stood the seraphim. Uh, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face. With twain he covered his feet. And with twain he did fly. And that covering his feet may mean he covered his genitals. It may mean he covered his legs. It may mean he covered his feet. It may mean he covered his legs and feet. It may mean he covered his genitals and legs. Or it may mean he covered all three. We don't really know. Alright, so King Asa, we're told in 2 Chronicles 16, 12, had a great disease in his feet. Asa, in the 30 and 9th year of his reign, was diseased in his feet until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not the Lord, but to the physicians. One tradition says this was either a UTI or an STD. That feet is referring to his genitals here. Another tradition suggests that given his age, it may have actually been his feet or legs, and he may have had diabetic ulcers, osteoporosis, gout is a possibility, right? So, or some other age-related disease of the feet and or legs. So you can see it can be interpreted multiple times. We see with Ezekiel, it's very clearly a reference to genitals. It's very clearly a, 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 a representative, uh, representing either your, your, either your butt or your, your penis in, the, in terms of Saul, because we don't know if Saul went in to urinate or defecate, but it's got something to do with that. It's covering his feet. So the term feet becomes problematic. We don't know what it, it means because it can mean feet. It can mean lower legs. It can mean, I guess by extension, knees. It can be thighs or it can be genitals. So 
when it says that Zipporah touched his feet, what does that mean? Well, here are the possibilities from the text's grammar. One, she touched the angel's feet with the severed prepuce. Now, let me state this real quick. This is from the Masoretic. Remember, she doesn't touch anybody with a prepuce in the Septuagint account. We'll get back to that. But from the Masoretic, the possibilities are, one, she touched the angel's feet with a severed prepuce. Two, she touched Moses' feet with a severed prepuce. Three, she touched her son's feet with a severed prepuce. Four, she touched the angel's leg with a severed prepuce. Five, she touched Moses' leg with a severed prepuce. Six, she touched her son's leg with a severed prepuce. Seven, she touched the angel's penis with a severed prepuce. Eight, she touched Moses' penis with a severed prepuce. Or nine, she touched her son's penis with a severed prepuce. Now let me deal with these a little bit. I don't think nine makes that much sense. If you just cut the foreskin off, why are you going to touch the foreskin to the penis you just cut it off? So I'll the first one to say that grammatically, even though it's possible she touched her son's penis with a severed prepuce grammatically, I don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. But we got to leave it there because grammatically we can't say it, it, it's not grammatically. So, uh, but I don't think that makes a lot of sense. The next thing I want to address is number seven gives some people some heartburn about the possibility that she touched the angel's penis with a severed prepuce. The fact that angels have penises gives people a lot of heartburn. But I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible makes it clear indirectly that they do. So look with me in your Bibles at 2 Peter chapter 2, and then we're going to look at uh, Jude. And Jude doesn't have a chapter number, right? Because there's no chapters in Jude. So it'll be Jude... Uh, verses 6 and 7, and it'll be 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. All right, so we'll start with 2 Peter. For if God did not spare the angels that sinned, but delivered them to chains of darkness, thrust down into Tartarus, having been kept to judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah the eighth, a herald of righteousness, bringing a flood of on a world of ungodly ones and covering the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah with ashes, he condemned them with an overthrow, setting an example to men intending to live ungodly. So here Peter is talking about angels that sinned that were chained in Tartarus. Okay, They were thrust down in Tartarus. By the way, that's the only time Tartarus is ever used in the Bible. Tartarus, Peter uses that so the pagan Greeks could understand what he was talking about. Tartarus is a place that comes out of Greek mythology. It is where the Titans are chained. If you understand Greek mythology and you know about the Titanomachy, Machi means war. So if you know about the Titanomachy, what happened is, is that Zeus waged war against the elder gods, his forefathers, essentially, which were the Titans. And when they defeated the Titans, they were chained in Tartarus, and they were guarded by the Hecatonchores. And the Hecatonchores were the hundred-handers. They had 50 heads and 100 hands. They were 
titans in and of themselves, but they sided with Zeus. And so the Hecatonchores and the Titanic original Cyclopses, or Cyclopes is the proper uh, uh, plural, the original Cyclopes actually are the ones that gave Zeus his thunderbolts. And they sided, along with the Hecatonchores, against the Titans. And the Titans become chained in this Tartarus. And Tartarus is described in Greek mythology as being bef as far below the realm of Hades. Now, the realm of Hades is not hell like we think of it. The realm of Hades is the underworld where everybody goes. It's ruled over by the elder brother of Zeus, Hades. Okay? And Tartarus is, is, is described as being as far below the realm of Hades as the earth is below heaven. So where is that? I don't know and I never want to find out. But he is using this term Tartarus to paint the picture to the Greeks that they are chained in a deep, dark pit of woe, because that's what Tartarus was, a deep, dark pit of woe. This may be the abyss, the abuso. It may be. That's speculation, but it may be. We don't know. All right? What's interesting is he's talking about these angels that sin. Now, we know that the devil and his falling angels are not chained. They're free to wander on the earth. This is a different set of angels, and they're chained into Tartarus, in this dark abode of woe. And he talks about them in relation to Noah because they, they were really the origin of, of, the, of the necessity of the flood. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Genesis 6. But these, these sinning angels were the real reason for the flood uh, because of what they did and the legacy they left. And he talks about them, and he also relates them with Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude does it even more clearly. If you look in Jude, we'll start with verse 6. And those angels, not having kept their first place, but having deserted their dwelling place, he has kept in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of a great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in like manner to these, committing fornication and going away after strange flesh, laid down an example before times, undergoing vengeance of everlasting fire. So what we see here is what Jude is saying is that these angels that kept not their first place, in other words, they didn't stay in heaven. They deserted their dwelling place. And in like manner to Sodom and Gomorrah, they committed fornication and they went after strange flesh. Now, the going after strange flesh is a bad enough sin, but it's in like manner to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are famous, of course, for being homosexuals. But read the story. It's more than that. These men show up at Lot's door, right? Lot get, brings them into his house. They're not really men. They're angels, but they appear as men. The Sodomites think they're men and want Lot to bring them out so they can gang rape them. That's what they're wanting to do to these quote-unquote men. They don't realize they're angels. They think they're men. 
and they want Lot to bring them out so they can gang rape them. So not only was Sodom and Gomorrah in, in sin with homosexuality, they were in sin because they raped people. And they were so intent on raping these men that they don't even care about raping Lot's daughters, which God, God tells us in the, you know, in the story that Lot offers his virgin girls to the crowd to be raped rather than let them you know, touch these guests of his. They don't care about the women. They want to rape the men. The point here is that these angels, if you look back at Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to do this, and it's a bit of a sidetrack, but I want to put this in perspective. Because we have, to, we have to explain this whole thing about reproduction and angels. So Genesis chapter 6. And it came about that men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. And the Bene Chalohim, the sons of God. By the way, the Codex Alexandrinus translates this unequivocally as the angels. All right, so the Codex Alexandrinus says the angels saw the daughters of men. Okay? The Codex Sinaiticus, and I believe the Codex Vaticanus, preserves sons of God language. But the sons of God, the Bene Halohim, is a Hebrew idiom that's only used of a direct creation of God. It's only used of Adam himself and the angels. And this is not Adam, and it's used in the plural. Okay? So this is the angels. So the Bene Halohim, the angels, saw the daughters of the Benoth Adam, is the Hebrew word, Benoth, daughters. Adam means Adam and also means man, because remember, Adam's never given a name by God. Adam is just called man. The word Adam means man. So Benoth Adam means daughters of Adam, loosely, but specifically it means daughters of men, or daughters of man. Right. So when the angels saw the daughters of men, that they were fair or beautiful, they took them wives for themselves from all they chose. Now that's an interesting phrase. They took them wives for themselves from all they chose. What that means is these women had no say in the matter. They had no choice. The the Jewish tradition here, of the original Orthodox Jewish tradition that, that followed the, the angel view of Genesis 6, that tradition suggested that what happened here is angelic rape. These angels descended down to the, mount, the mountains of Hermon in the days of Jared, and they made this pact that they were going to use women as broodmares to create an unholy race. And they went in and they took these women and it was angelic rape. So they lusted after strange flesh and raped them. And this is the start of the Nephilim. Alright? So, when the angels saw the daughters of men that they were fair, they took wives for themselves from all they chose. And Yehovah said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, in their erring, 
he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. So he's, he's, God's saying there's going to be 120 years longer that I'm going to suffer this. And then there's going to be a judgment. And the Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and even afterwards, when the sons of God, or the angels, came to the daughters of men, and they bore to them children, or sometimes sometimes translated as, as and they bore, bore to them sons, they were heroes of old, which existed from the ancient times, the men of renown. All right? Another translation of that, which reads a little easier, frankly. <clears throat> and there were the Nephilim in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the angels came in to the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became the mighty men, the Hagiborim is the actual Hebrew, the mighty men which were of old, the men of renown. So these are the origins of the Nephilim. All right? And we'll talk about the Nephilim when we get to Genesis 6. The point here is, is that these are angels. Peter tells us these were angels. Jude tells us these were angels that lusted after strange flesh just in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah did. These are angels that went in and had sexual intercourse with human women and begat the Nephilim. So I just wanted, I have to bring that out. Because this notion that she might have touched the severed prepuce to the angel's penis bothers people. But in the history of the Bible and in, the, in what is written there, angels are capable of reproduction. Just because Christ says that the angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage doesn't mean they, don't, they weren't built with genitals. It means that they're celibate. But fallen angels aren't celibate. We're told that. They're probably celibate now because the ones that engage in this mischief get locked up. So it's possible that they're celibate, that the fallen angels are celibate now, but they weren't back then. So it is not unreasonable view that she may have touched the angel's penis with a severed prepuce. Okay? Again, I'm not going to take sides. I'm not saying I favor that view. As actually, in point of fact, I don't favor that view. But I do have to defend it because biblically it is plausible. Okay? It's biblically plausible. So I have to defend that it is a plausible view. It's not the personal one I subscribe to, but I can't fault anyone for having it, nor should anybody else. So let's talk about the assumptions. Because verses 22 and 23 involve mention of the firstborn, there's an assumption by some that Gershom is the issue here. Now, it's not said that Gershom and Eleazar are twins, but even if they were, Gershom would be considered the firstborn if he came out first, right? Remember Esau and Jacob, right? Esau and Jacob are twins. Esau comes out first and Jacob has grabbed his heel. So Esau becomes the firstborn even though they were really born about the same time. So whoever is out first got the firstborn status. That's just the way it was. So if they're twins, you know, why would the circumcision of one be enough to stop the attack? It just doesn't make sense. If they're not twins, Gershom would be much older than eight, eight days, right? Because you know, you'd have to have nine months for you know, Eleazar's gestation. 
So, you know, you would assume that Gershom, at the very least, is, is a year or more old at this particular time. So, maybe Eliezer was the issue, because Gershom should have been circumcised on the eighth day. All right, the next assumption is that God is trying to kill Moses, but that's not accurate, actually stated. We don't know who the target is. Is it Moses, Gershom, or Eliezer? The only one we know is not the target is Zipporah. She's not the target of the attack. We don't know about the other three. Is Moses being attacked? Is Gershom being attacked? Or is Eliezer being attacked? We don't know. The fact is, we don't even know who's circumcised. We don't know if it was Gershom or Eliezer. Then, what was touched with the prepuce? Feet, legs, or penis? And whose was touched? Was it the brother, Moses, or the angel? So not surprising, there's a lot of traditions and interpretations of this passage. Most tend to agree on one thing. The problem was Zipporah's distaste for circumcision. And Moses failed to put his foot down as a member of the tribe of Levi and demand the covenant of his God be honored. As the Jewish head of the household, it was Moses' responsibility to make sure his sons bore the mark of the covenant. Remember, we read that earlier with the covenant with Abraham. You had to circumcise all the males of your line. Anyone that was in the covenant that was a male had to be circumcised. And if they weren't part of the covenant, but they were part of the covenant by proxy because you bought them as a slave, you had to circumcise the slave. So God says, I mean, there's no, there's, no, there's no kid getting out. The firstborn gets circumcised. I don't care about the secondborn. No, that's not the case. You, if you've got to even circumcise your slaves, you definitely got to circumcise, circumcise your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth born, whatever. I don't care if you have a hundred youngins. Apparently, you got to circumcise them all. So... It's Moses' responsibility to make sure that his sons bore the mark of the covenant. And he failed to do this. What's interesting in this text, and this is what a lot of the Jewish scholars point out, Zipporah knew what to do. She knew that whatever this attack was, whether it was a choking of some kind, whether someone physically does, some entity physically does come in and she, and she can see this assassination attempt going on, or whether this is somebody being stricken with disease. We don't know. Doesn't say. But Zipporah knows this is about her son's circumcision. She knows this is about his prepuce not being cut off. She knows it. So the one thing that the Jewish tradition talks about here is that there's very clearly what we would call today an off-camera discussion between her and Moses at some point for this event to make any sense at all. There has to be an argument between Moses and Zipporah. And you see that borne out in the Masoretic text with what she says. It's clearly venomous. But Zipporah had to know what, what this was about. There's no way she could know that, that, okay, let's say it was a disease that was afflicting somebody. How would she know that cutting off foreskin was going to cure the disease? There is one tradition that says Moses is the object of the attack because God is, is, 
is holding Moses responsible and that God's afflicting him with a disease. And so she cuts off her son's foreskin and when she touches Moses with the foreskin, that cures, miraculously cures his disease. That's one interpretation. I can't fault that interpretation. But the Bible doesn't really say it like that, but it doesn't not say it, right? You know, this is one of those passages where, okay, the, the Bible may not say it, but you also have to look at what it doesn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't not say, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Because that narrative may well be the case. It's just as plausible given these three very vague verses. But there's another tradition, and another, and another, and we'll go through some of these traditions. But the tradition is that Zipporah, being a Midianite, understood what circumcision was, understood how it was supposed to be done, but her people did not do it on the eighth day. For them, it was either a premarital rite or it was a rite performed as a rite of passage to manhood and so it was a puberty rite. And she viewed this as barbaric to do this to a child. And so she has a fight with Moses in this tradition. That she has a fight with Moses and she puts her foot down and Moses doesn't put his down. And he lets her have her way with one of the children not being circumcised. In this tradition, presumably, it's either one. I've heard both interpretations, but a lot of people say, well, this was Gershom. So she said, well, you can have the second born, but I'll have the first born. Another tradition is, no, that it's Eleazar because she said, all right, you can have the firstborn, but the secondborn's mine. We don't know. Again, that's speculation, right? It's speculation. But let's look at these traditions. As we mentioned earlier, the, the, the traditions tend to agree that there had been some disagreement between husband and wife on the matter of circumcision of one of the boys. This is borne out by the Masoretic text version of the story when Zipporah calls someone a bridegroom of blood. But is she referring to Moses or God as her bloody bridegroom because of the circumcision? That's the first tradition we're going to look at because there's two variances on that as well. There's also traditions that you know this, this may have been directed at God rather than Moses, this bridegroom of blood comment. And that seems a little odd unless you understand the Hebrew. All right, so let's look at tradition one. Moses is being referred to as the bridegroom of blood because he wanted to circumcise the boys and Zipporah did not or did not want one of them circumcised. She's forced to act and is angry with Moses for having to conform to what she thinks is a barbaric practice on a child. That's one tradition. So she calls Moses a husband of blood or a bloody husband or a bridegroom of blood. There's another tradition. God is the target of comment or the angel because he has demanded this bloodletting from her child and she is now married to Moses and Moses' religion. And thus this blood desiring God and his religion are metaphorically her hatan damim. That's the Hebrew. Now most reject the idea because calling God a bridegroom of blood is strange if she's married to Moses. But it's not strange if you understand the Hebrew. You see, Zipporah's enigmatic Masoretic text statement has two possible meanings. She, one, she touches the foreskin to Moses saying, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. That's one possibility. 
or she touches God or the angel with it, wherever it is, feet, legs, or penis, whatever, and says, you are hatam or hatan damim. Well, hatan is the issue. Damim means blood. All right? Damim means blood. Hatan means either bridegroom or father-in-law. And so it could be translated as she touching the angel or God with the foreskin and saying, you are a bloody father-in-law to me. So with God the father of Israel and the father of us all, he is literally her father-in-law religion-wise because of Moses' religion and her heavenly father too. Thus the phrase can equally be directed at God or at God through the angel that you are a bloody father-in-law to me. Because the Hebrew, hatan damim, can mean bloody bridegroom or bloody father-in-law. So next we're going to tackle the disagreement between Moses and Zipporah. The first view is she doesn't want the boys to be circumcised and refuse to let Gershom, her firstborn, be circumcised, and this makes God angry. The second view is that Eliezer is uncircumcised, but God demands both be circumcised. And after, after having a deal with Moses to allow it in Gershom and not do it in Eleazar, God forces her to do it in Eleazar. The third view is that Moses is an issue as well. And I'm going to espouse this view, and I want you all to understand that this view is a view that is widely held uh, by a lot of preachers. And I'm going to tell you, this is one of these views that I'm going to espouse for you for the sake of argument. But I'm going to tell you, I don't think this view is scripturally supported. And I will tell you why after I tell you the view. So, the, the view here is that Moses is the issue. Because he was not circumcised or had an improper circumcision. One view is, is that he may have been circumcised with the foreskin simply split. And in addition, her son is not circumcised. And Zipporah circumcises her son and touches her severed prepuce to Moses' uncircumcised or improperly circumcised penis so that he receives a circumcision by proxy which God accepts because he doesn't want Moses circumcised right now because that would incapacitate him for a while and he wants him to get to Egypt. Now, this is strange to me because Moses had to be circumcised on the eighth day because he was born a Levite. And let's look at Exodus chapter 2. Start with verse 1. And a man went from the house of Levi and took a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and she saw him, that he was beautiful. And she concealed him three months. And when she was not able to hide him any longer, she took a basket for him made of papyrus, and she daubed it with bitumen and with pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the lip of the Nile. And his sister took her, her stand from a distance to know what would become of him. And the daughter of Pharaoh went down to bathe at the Nile, and her slave women were, were walking to the side of the Nile, and she saw the basket in the midst of the reeds and sent her slave girl and took it. 
And she opened it and saw, saw the child, and behold, a boy crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the children of the Hebrews. That was Masoretic. Septuagint, it says almost exactly the same thing. It says they hid him for three months. And that this is one of the Hebrews' children. Okay? So, what we see here is that he was three months old when they dumped him in the Nile. Because they couldn't hide him no longer. He would have been circumcised on day eight. So Moses, in order to keep the covenant, would have had to have been circumcised. And his dad was a Levite. And his mother was a Levite. And they would have had him circumcised. Furthermore, and I know uh, Charlton Heston, I'm sorry, baby Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments has a Levite robe or piece of cloth in there with him. And that's how she recognizes that he's a Hebrew. Uh, that's good Hollywood. But I contend that the reason this woman knew that this was a Hebrew child is because she opened up that that basket and that baby sitting there in his you know in his wrap she unwraps this baby and his penis is circumcised they don't do that right the the Egyptians don't circumcise that early it had to be a Hebrew kid so I would submit that she knew it was a Hebrew because she saw the circumcision so I don't think that the argument that this was about Moses not being circumcised properly as well as not circumcising his son and then the son gets circumcised so Moses gets a circumcision by proxy I don't think that holds water I don't think the scriptures support that I'll be honest okay so Moses would have been circumcised because he was kept by his Hebrew parents for three months alright the other thing we need to look at is we need to look at the Septuagint again because the Septuagint verse, when it talks about in the Septuagint, this conversation she, oh, well, it was sort of one-sided, but this conversation she has, it makes it clear that she's speaking to the angel because what does she say in the Septuagint version? In the Septuagint version, she says, the blood of my son's circumcision is staunched, right? Hmm, that's interesting. All right, what it says is, Zipporah, taking it, uh, having taken a stone, cut off the foreskin of her son, and she fell, she fell at his feet and said, the blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. And he departed from him because she said, the blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. So it's, it's clearer in the Septuagint passage that Zipporah fell at his, at his feet and said, and he departed from him because... So the him that's the victim is not the one that departed, but the one that departed, departed because she said the blood of the circumcision of my son is staunch. So she is talking to this attacker. So it's very clear in the Septuagint account that one, she doesn't throw a foreskin at anybody, but two, she is, she is addressing the angel. So, let's look at some scenarios. Scenario one, and there's a 1A and a 1B, because this can go either way depending on who is attacked and, and uh, who is the target here, okay? So, 
who was attacked, who was the target, and who was the, the circumcision problem. This is going to give us, each one of these scenarios is going to have sort of two sub-scenarios with it where it could go either way. So scenario one, Zipporah is against circumcision, and Gershom is not circumcised, but she allows Eliezer to be circumcised. God mentions Israel as his firstborn, and Moses has not included his firstborn in the covenant by circumcising him. God decides that he's going to teach Moses to put his big boy pants on and not listen to the protests of Zipporah over the commands of God. And at the same time, he's going to get Zipporah to yield to his, meaning God's will. Okay? God then attacks Moses with either a physical attack or some disease and forces Zipporah, who somehow knows what this is all about, to relent and circumcise her son, even though Moses should have done it. All right? The alternate view is, is that God then attacks Gershom rather than Moses. And Moses is powerless to stop it or is not in the tent at the time. And Zipporah, who led Moses astray on the covenant, is forced to carry it out. So that's two ways to interpret this if it's Gershom that's the problem. Now I'll go ahead and tell you there's, there's a lot of people that like to kind of give this a, a Hollywood uh, drama to it. And I can see the, the appeal to it. It makes a great story. Is that the angel of the Lord comes in and Moses is lying on a bed and this angel of the Lord gets Moses in a lock and is choking the life out of him and staring with glowing eyes at Zipporah and Zipporah knows what this is about. That's a great Hollywood sounding script, scripted scene, right? We don't know that it happened that way. Sounds good, but we don't know that it happened that way. But somehow she knows what this is about. Okay? Now, this same scenario we can look at in a, in a, in a, in a the same scenario we can look at in a, in a separate way. Zipporah is against circumcision and Gershom's not circumcised, right? But not, then God then attacks Gershom. So we can have God attacking Moses or Gershom based on the grammar here. It does, we don't know. The second scenario has an A and a B way it can go too. It can go either way. The reference to Israel as the firstborn had nothing to do with the next incident as it's Eliezer that is not circumcised. God is angry that Moses has not kept the covenant with his children as all of them have to be marked by it in accord with the covenant of Abraham. So one way it can go is God then attacks Moses with either a physical attack or some disease and forces Zipporah, who somehow knows what this is all about, to relent and circumcise her son, even though Moses should have done it. Or the other way it could have gone, God then attacks Eliezer, and Moses is powerless to stop it or is not in the tent at the time. Zipporah, who leads Moses astray on the covenant, is forced to carry it out. Now, some point out that Eliezer not being circumcised may have some support later in the First Testament. Because we read in 1 Chronicles 23, And as to Moses, the man of God, his sons were named of the tribe of Levi. And the sons of Moses were Gershom and Eliezer. And the sons of Gershom, Shebuel was the head. And the sons of Eliezer, uh, Rehabadah, the head. And Eliezer had no other sons, but the sons of Rehabadah were very many. Now the tradition says that very many refers to a specific number in the Hebrew, 600,000. Uh, they get that because the population that exited the Exodus was supposed to be 600,000, and God had said that the, uh, the nation of Israel had uh, prospered and become very many. So some point out that since Eleazar is noted as having given rise to very many people, his line was blessed. 
Okay? Furthermore, it's tradition that the line of Gershom falls to idolatry. The children of Dan, this is Judges 1830, the children of Dan erected graven images for themselves, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, son of Manasseh, and his descendants served as idolatrous priests to the tribe of Dan until the land went into exile. Now, the Talmud enlightens us on this. Was Gershom the son of Manasseh? Well, they say, that the Talmud says no, he wasn't. He was the son of Moses. But his actions were not like those of Moses' father. So they added a nun, which is equivalent more or less to, to a letter N, to connect him to Manasseh instead. And why Manasseh? Because Manasseh was the wicked king of Judah who was notorious for idol worship. And it's out of reverence for Moses that they alter Moses' name. Now, where do they get this? Well, they actually get this from the Aleppo Codex, from, from the actual Masoretic text. The oldest copy of we, that we have is the Aleppo Codex. And if you look in the Aleppo Codex at that, at that verse, you can see, remember, they, they, write, you know, they write opposite of us. We write left, uh, left to right, they write right to left. If you look at it, you can see that there is at the letter Nun. It's got the name, if you, if you eliminate the letter Nun, it's the name Moshe, Moses. But there's a letter Nun stuck in as a superscript, suspended above the rest of the letters. And so the rabbis explain that as, in deference to Moses, the letter Nun was included, thus altering the name. It is scripturally suspended to indicate that it was not actually Menashe, but Moshe. And in the Aleppo Codex, you can actually see the suspended nun. So it looks like the Masoretes altered the text, right? Well, there's a little problem with that. There is a little problem. Because guess what? If the Masoretes altered the text in that way, those that copied the Hebrew origin text for the Septuagint did the same thing. Here's the Septuagint verse of Judges 18.30. And the children of Dan set up the graven image for themselves. And Jonathan, son of Gershon, son of Manasseh, M-A-N-A-S-S-E, Manasseh. He and his sons were priests of the tribe of Dan till the time of the carrying away of the nation. So the Septuagint says that it's Gershom, son of Manasseh. So if this alteration of Moses' name, if Gershom's Dad's name was altered in the Masoretic text. It appears that was a Hebrew standard from antiquity because the text from which the Septuagint is translated must have had the same or a similar alteration as well, which is interesting. But the tradition is that this Gershom is not actually the son of Menashe because Menashe is later. It's Moshe. It's Moses. 
but they changed the name out of reverence for Moses. And apparently they, they must have do it, done it in the Hebrew text that was translated into the Septuagint as well. Hmm. So that's something interesting. But because of all of this, some argue that the issue of the circumcision was Eleazar, who was dearest to Zipporah. Now, why do they think it was dearest to Zipporah? The youngest was dearest to Jacob in the story of Yosef. And so some people draw parallels between Zipporah babying her youngest and Jacob babying his youngest. But what's clear is, is that Eliezer's line is the line that's blessed. It becomes a great many people. Whereas the line of Gershom seems to fade from history. So the argument is that, that there is scriptural evidence and that God wants us to know Eliezer's line is prolific because Eliezer is the one God was more interested in. And if Eliezer is the one that God, more, that, that God was more interested in, then it's Eliezer that's the subject of this circumcision. So that's the thought process on that view. All right. So that then brings us to the debate over who was touched with the foreskin or who was the target of Zipporah's comment. Whether it was the feet, legs, or penis touched, who was touched? And it's an outside possibility that it was the other son, but that doesn't really make sense. Okay? Most likely it was either the angel or Moses. We simply don't know. But like I said just a little bit ago, the, the clue may be the Septuagint because the Septuagint makes it clear that she is directing her comments and apparently it, it, it reads like she's falling at the feet of the angel. So it came to pass that the angel of the Lord met him by the way in the inn and sought to kill him. And Sipporah, having taken a, taken a stone, cut off the foreskin of her son and fell at his feet and said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. And he departed from him because she said, The blood of the circumcision of my son is staunched. So grammatically, his feet, uh, that's who she fell at, the next he should reflect back to that his. He departed from him. So he being the angel departed from the victim, obviously, because she said. So it appears grammatically at least that Zipporah fell at the angel's feet and she's talking to the angel. That gives argument to the Masoretic interpretation where that's mistranslated as bridegroom of blood and should have been father-in-law of blood or bloody father-in-law because she's directing her comment to the angel, to God through the angel. All right. that's, that's another interpretation, but that seems to be what's supported by looking at both texts. So Zipporah falls at someone's feet in the Septuagint account. She does not say that he's a bridegroom or father-in-law of blood, but announces that the blood of her son's penis has clotted. Indicated the rite is finished and complete, and the boy is now in the covenant and is fine. This variant of the story seems to indicate that the angel is the one that's addressed and is the target of the comment. But also note that in this older version of the story, it's more clearly feet being talked about. She fell at his feet. That's more clearly 
feet meaning feet rather than feet meaning penis or thighs or knees. Or, it, it sounds like feet means feet here. And there's no mention of touching feet with a prepuce. Some have argued that this prepuce stuff is added later to add drama to the scene. I don't know if that's true or not, but that has been an argument. However, you know, whatever the case, the target of Zipporah's action apparently is the angel as indicated in the Septuagint. And if that's the truth, then the Masoretic would read as Zipporah touched her son's severed prepuce to the angel's feet, meaning his toes, his actual feet, or maybe his shins. She might have touched it to the lower leg. Maybe his ankle, you could argue that. But in that case, it would seem to indicate that if you take the two texts together, if she did touch the prepuce to something, it looks like it's actually either the angel's shins, ankles, feet, or toes. Feet can mean any of that. But it doesn't look like we're talking about thighs or genitals here because she's falling at his feet in the Septuagint. If she touches his feet with the prepuce, it sounds like it actually means feet here. Okay? So, even though we've got all these other possibilities and all these views, once you marry the two texts and you look at both accounts, you, you start to come up with the fact that, okay, this isn't Moses' feet that's being touched. It literally means feet, and it's the angels. Well, if not literally feet, then maybe his shins or his toes, you know, but something down there. Not, not higher. Alright, so thus we see that what's going on here is a whole lot of simple storytelling that left to a lot that leads to a lot of confusion. And it causes us, as we've just seen, to get lost in a lot of interpretation. But what is the basic lesson here? It's that Zipporah is forced to conform to the covenant and Moses is taught not to compromise on the commands of God. That's the take home. All of these traditions, all of these speculations, all of them boil down to that simple fact. Moses and Zipporah get put in their place. Now, what about Zipporah? Because one of the things we notice is certainly from the Masoretic account, you're a, uh, you're a, a husband of blood to me or you're a father-in-law of blood to me. After she is forced to conform, she still has a bad attitude about it. Her attitude is not right. It could be argued that she spoke bitterly to God, certainly based on the Masoretic account. Well, Zipporah is not real well rewarded, I'll tell you that. At some point before the exodus from Egypt, Moses sends her and her kids away. All right? After the exodus, her father, Jethro, comes to visit Moses and brings Zipporah and her two sons. And in Exodus 18.6, we're told that, you know, Jethro is coming to see you. Moses goes out to greet Jethro and takes him into his tent. He doesn't greet Zipporah. It is possible 
that they became an estranged couple after she's forced to conform to God's covenant. That she has a poor attitude and doesn't take it well, and at some point she leaves him. And when he sends her away, that's because she has caused strife in the home and they basically have separated. And that is one point of view that you'll run across in, in some of these texts and, and some, of, uh, some of these commentaries uh, that you'll see by, by some of them very esteemed uh, theologians talk about that, that Zipporah left her husband, that they were estranged. But we don't have an estrangement between Moses and his first wife. Remember I hinted that Moses had a first wife. Well, let's talk about her. Because Zipporah appears a couple of times and then she kind of fades into obscurity. We hear about her sons later on, but not really Zipporah. But we actually hear in Numbers chapter 12 about Tharbis, although she's not named. What we know is, is that in Numbers chapter 12, Aaron and the sister of Moses, Miriam, so Aaron the brother of Moses and Miriam the sister of Moses, speak out against Moses' Cushite wife. So let's look at Numbers chapter 12. And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman he had taken, for he had taken a Cushite woman. And they... And they said, Has Jehovah spoken only by Moses? Has he not also spoken by us? And Jehovah heard. And the, and the man Moses was very meek, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. So it says that, that Moses was, was meek. Okay, And Jehovah, it, we're told, I, I won't read all of it, but uh, God goes to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam and says, uh, Come into the tabernacle of the congregation. We're, we're going to have a, a meet. And God came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the tabernacle door and he called Aaron and, and, and Miriam and he chastises them. In fact, he even gives Miriam leprosy. All right? So, and this is in both accounts, by the way. This is both Septuagint and, and Masoretic. So, what we see is that God apparently liked Tharbis better than he liked Zipporah. God defends Tharbis. When they speak bitterly against, against Tharbis, and God comes down on them. And he even gives Miriam leprosy, and they convince God to, to heal her after, I think it was seven days. Well, uh, let's talk about Tharbis. Who is Tharbis? She's not named in the Masoretic text, nor in the Septuagint. We do learn from the tradition that as a prince of Egypt, Moses was involved in military campaigns for the Pharaoh. One campaign involved Cush, which is Ethiopia. Josephus records the tradition from the Jerusalem tradition that Moses married Tharbus in Ethiopia before he murdered the Egyptian and fled to Midian. And here's what Josephus has to say. However, while Moses was uneasy at the ar armies lying idle, for the enemies durst not come to a battle, this accident happened. Tharbus, the daughter of the king of the Ethiopians, she happened to see Moses, and, she, and he led the army near to the walls and fought with great courage, and admiring the subtlety of his undertakings and believing him to be the author of the Egyptian success, when they had fought 
before despaired of recovering their liberty and to be the occasion of the great danger the Ethiopians were in when they had before boasted of their great achievements. She fell deeply in love with him and upon the prevalency of that passion sent to him the most faithful of all her servants to discourse with him upon their marriage. He thereupon accepted the offer of the, on the condition that she would procure the delivering up of the city and, she gave, and gave her the assurance of an oath to take her to his wife and that when he had once taken possession of the city he would not break his oath to her. No sooner was the agreement made, but it took effect immediately. And when Moses had cut off the Ethiopians, he gave thanks to God and consummated his marriage and led the Egyptians back to their own land. So we have this insight out of the Jerusalem tradition that was preserved by Flavius Josephus that Moses was a military leader for Egypt. And during one of his campaigns against Cush, which is Ethiopia, a Cushite princess falls in love with him and helps him defeat her own country and marries him. Now, that's all interesting, but what's this boil down to? Well, as you can see, this is a very complex single passage in the Bible that consists of just three verses. And you can see the amount of debate that can be generated by just three verses. So if I had to wrap this up in a neat lesson, what would it be? Well, here's how I would wrap it up. God demands a covenant be kept. Moses, whether he was the attacked or his son was, did not keep the covenant and mark his son as he was supposed to do. God decides that a lesson needs to be learned here. I believe it's very obvious that God did not actually intend to slay either Moses or his son, or they would have died. This seems to have been a pointed lesson not only to Moses, but to Zipporah as well. It seems to be a pointed lesson to both of them as to their place. The place of Moses as a Levite and Jew, and the chosen one to lead the people out of bondage, and to teach Zipporah her place as his wife bound to the covenant by her marriage and children. What else can we learn? What becomes obvious is that Zipporah is forced to relent, but takes the matter poorly, and she leaves Moses to go back to Midian, taking the two boys with her. She does not rejoin Moses until she's brought back by her father Jethro, and Zipporah then sort of fades into oblivion, though her two sons get mentioned later. Tharbis, however, never seems to be given children but she's defended by God. The lesson here seems to be that Zipporah never had her heart right with God. She was a woman who only reluctantly submitted to the will of God and still copped a toot about it. The resting place on the way to Egypt is a pointed lesson about the seriousness of keeping your covenants with God, but also about having the right attitude about it. The sin of Moses earlier is the lack of faith. The sin at the time of this incident of Moses is not putting his foot down and meeting his obligation as a member of the covenant people. The sin of Zipporah is not knowing her place as one who's married into the covenant and not 
willingly going with the will of God. And so this is the whole bridegroom of blood incident. As you can see, it was very complex. It was, it was fun to get through. It's, it's a hard thing to get through. But I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got something out of it. I'm Mick Robison, and this has been another episode of Bible Heresies and Orthodoxies. I hope you've enjoyed it, and may the blessings of Yeshua be upon you. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you. May the Lord be with you, love you, keep you. And remember to keep His covenants, or you might just get a beat down. Alright? So, may the love of God go with you. Peace be with you until next time. Good night.